Welcome to Death Holler. Do you like scary movies? Welcome to Season 3. Slash or pass. There will be laughter. <laughs> tears. <laughs> tender moments. Jeez. Jeez. My special, special boy. But most of all, screams. <laughs> Remember, when you're in Death Holler, listener discretion is always advised. We hope you have a killer time. Well, here we are, back at it, just having recorded the Evil Dead Rides uh, recording, so we've got that in the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, for anybody out there that's interested, it's very spoilerific. So, you know, you know, discretion on that one, just, you know, don't, don't listen to until you're, uh, ready to, uh, hear a bunch of spoilers. We, we do kind of give our thoughts in the first few minutes of that. Yeah. Um, there's a movie though that we've, that we've seen otherwise is not, yeah, there's a movie that we've seen otherwise though, that, uh, we, that we've both enjoyed and not horror related, but I figured that we'd bring it up on here because why not cold open? That's what we do. Mm -hmm. Talk about other things. Uh, Super Mario brothers. Oh my God. What, what and I was going to surprise on, on you with the peaches song too. I was planning on doing <laughs> that and I was like, nah, that's not horror related. Gotta be good. <laughs> Holy crap, man. The Super Mario movie. You know, I think part of the reason I enjoy this, and I've heard people's, there's been complaints, there's been reviews I've heard that kind of break it down. It was like, well, there's this and too much of this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, I went into this movie with low expectations because back in our day when we had to walk through the snow uphill both ways to get to a movie theater to see the Super Mario Brothers, uh, we were greatly disappointed. Um, and John Liguini Igazamo, we're going to bring you up when we talk about this. You did not do us justice. I'm sorry. Um, we were shunned with that movie for sure. So to be able to walk into this movie with my kids and go for it for what it, you know what it is. It's just a kid's movie and a good time. Oh my God. It was amazing. It was more than that. Yeah, it's. John Leguizamo crying about the lack of Latino representation is a bunch of bullshit. First of all, he's playing an Italian character, so what the fuck, dude? Like, yeah. I don't even know. You're you're lucky that you even had a place in that that original movie. But uh, secondly, um, I've heard the complaints. Uh, there are some valid the valid points out there. The you know the 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 people who are giving it like mediocre to negative reviews are saying that there's not a lot of substance to the plot. Uh, but, but first of all, it's a kid's movie. I mean, I'm, they don't all have to, I mean, not, not every movie has to be citizens Kane or citizen, uh, citizen Kane. And I, and I realize that, you know, there's some kids movies out there, like the original toy story that have like, you know, quite a bit going on in the background or even that movie inside up or, or uh, like, is that the name of it? Inside, inside out. Uh, inside out. Yeah. Uh, there's like, there's a lot of depth in that movie as far as like the characters go and you don't get that in the Marvel movie and I'll grant him that, but 
there's a lot of fan service in the movie, which helps nostalgia wise for like, you know, especially people, you know, of our generation, the uh, Oregon trail generation, as it were, <laughs> uh, that, that, that grew up on the Mario brothers. I mean, that was literally, and I've, I've told it before in like, you know, real life, but that was like my red rider BB gun was the Nintendo, yeah. uh, NES. Like that was the one that was my favorite thing that I ever got for Christmas. And I begged my dad for like a solid year for between 85 and 86 to, because I saw it at a local store, like a kid there, like the, his family owned the place. And, you know, like he was playing it like behind the counter or whatever while, you know, work was going on. And I saw it and I begged my dad. And like, when I finally got it, like that original Super Mario Brothers was like the thing that I, you know, cherished the most. Like it was the best gift ever. So um, there is definitely a lot of, uh, you know, fan service and, and things that Nintendo did to, you know, for the, you know, even older fans like oh, that. Yeah. I mean, you're, me and my wife both looked at each other, having, you know, grown up around that time. Uh, whenever Mario first gets to the castle and there's the two toads outside and, you know, they're like joking with each other because they don't want him to, to go inside. So they're like, your princess is in another castle. And we said it to each other before they even said it because we knew, we knew that that's what Nintendo was going with, with that, that scene. So, yeah. Um, uh, you know, God, for, for <laughs> Mario Brothers being, Super Mario Brothers for our generation being the height of our anxiety, uh, I, I, by the way, have never beat the games. I couldn't do it. And I actually gave up. Um, but they were so fun. I loved watching people play them and actually get through them. <laughs> and there's actually videos going around of that. Actually, like you get a video of them doing that. And I'm like, good for you. Cause I couldn't, you know, <laughs> but I was, I, I had heard that there's, it's just, it's mostly fan service. And it's like, well, there's a difference between just fan service and nostalgia because just because you remember it doesn't mean it's solely fan service you have a story that you have to tell. You have to explain why this is this and why it's not that. Like, for instance, he had an Italian accent at the beginning just for the commercial, but it was a good way to explain that these are not who they were. They were just doing it for, you know, the idea of we're Italian brothers that being Italian, it means family. It means, you know, quality. It means this. It means that. And a lot of cultures use that. You know, Mexicans try to do it, too, and everything. And it's like they explained a lot of things. And it's like, OK, so you still have a story you have to tell. And so there's going to be nostalgia in it. There's going to be member berries. There's going to be fan service because you enjoyed it. Don't get mad because that's in there for that. Like, you have, oh, it's just fan service. Well, that means you enjoyed it then. So <laughs> shut the fuck up. You know, you're yeah, being a hypocrite yeah. right now. So, well, a hypocritic, (laughs) a hypocritic. That's a good one. Uh, they did, um, thing is, is that they, they, you know, they try to throw out that there's no, I've heard the complaint from critics that there's no character progression in the movie whatsoever. That is patently false because like Mario, uh, you know, the whole point of the movie is that Mario comes to accept that, you know, like his dreams and, and like his, you know, his value within himself is, is valid, even though and, and his father doesn't feel like that, you know, uh, or that he's leading his brother down a bad path and that he's, you know, never going to amount to anything that they should have stuck with their stable job working for Spike, you know, and that, and that whole thing. Uh, and, and 
they established in the movie that Mario finds his worth and him and Luigi, you know, prove that, you know, they, you know, they're salt, their brothers, you know, their, you know, like relationship with each other is solidified by the end of the movie. And even like Luigi, like has some growth because he goes from being a complete coward, mm-hmm. like, you know, to actually standing up for his brother and actually, you know, helping him out, out toward the end. Yeah. Um, the separate, the they're, together they're great, but separate, they, they can individually do what they need to do. Yeah, yeah, but but they realize that was as long that they'll always have each other's back, and that's like the the main through line of the movie, and and it's not a bad thing to promote. Um, it's good, actually. <clears throat> it's a good thing to promote. Yeah, and and I've heard complaints about Peach being a girl boss. Now, this movie straddles the line because you got one side saying it's anti woke, some saying it's it's full on woke, and then there's a lot of us in the middle that's like it's neither. It's just it's you know it's entertainment. Yeah, it's not it's not trying to project any kind of political message. The uh, anti woke people, you know, came out there and said, well, it didn't have anything in it, so it's like a, a you know thumb to the eye, you know, of all these people. <laughs> it's like. It does have some girl boss moments. Their Peach is yes. a bit of a girl boss, but at the same time, they don't like go out of their way to like emasculate like Mario. Even with even though there's people, it's like well, he's wearing a fucking cat suit. It's like he does in the games. Uh, have you ever played? A, have you ever played the the Wii U version of Super Mario Brothers? He wears a fucking cat suit, and it's one of the best suits yeah. you can get because you can actually climb walls with you it. You do but. a bunch of shit with it. <laughs> um. But, yeah, like, the whole point in the movie is, like, you know, they, they point out that, like, well, yeah, but Peach, like, was able to defeat, like, the obstacle course in the first day. Well, they point out in the movie she was raised there, uh, and and she actually points out that Mario's, like, greatest strength is that he never gives up. Like, yeah. even... And and that's just like the player. It's like just like you said, you, you die a million times playing that game. Like you're, you're dying <laughs> constantly, but you start back up. And yes, you, you, you keep at it, and that's and and so I mean it. If you grew up with the games, you have any inkling they they gave you the movie you wanted. Like yeah. I mean, now going forward, would I like some more development? Of, yes, oh, I mean of I think any I think everybody would. But like as a first outing and a way to get the uh, audience in on what could be a Nintendo Cinematic Universe, it's it's a very good start. Yeah, I think the thing that people forget is they're thinking that Peach just needs to be some girl stuck in a castle that needs to be rescued all the time. That's not realistic. Uh, how did she get there? Who was keeping her there? Uh, which, obviously, there's things you can do, and she did have to be saved still in this movie. I think they're completely ignoring that. But Peach was put into a position unwillingly, technically, um, but also because she was the only abled one to be put in that position. I was joking in the film, where's her father? He should be making these decisions. She's not a queen. (laughs) She's Princess Peach. Why did they make her just a princess? Technically, she should be queen. There's no king. There's no queen. Whatever. I digress. But uh, she was the only able person. It's like she's protecting her kingdom of animals. And every kingdom had their own leader that was there probably because they were you know, willing and able to do it. Peach, I don't know so much willing. She was the only able person. She's the only human. She's bigger than these people. And there wasn't as huge of a threat at the time. So, or yeah. I guess. Yeah, and they even established that the toads outside of the toad that we, we all love, the one that actually joins Mario, mm-hmm. uh, they're all kind of like, I mean, pacifistic or, yeah. or pacifist or whatever. They're like, 
You know, they, they don't really go out of their way to do anything. Like, Toad's the exception because, like, he's like an adventurer. Like, yes. even though he doesn't really have the strength or the, you know, like, but he, he's got the drive to, like, do bigger things. But he's the exception in the entire kingdom of, of the rest of his people. Like, you know. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, I like that aspect of it. And it's... I don't know. It's just, I, 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 there was so many little things, like even the music in the movie, like oh my it, God. I, just, I could feel like the goosebumps, like whenever I would hear like these or, orchestral versions of like the, the songs that like were just on repeat in my brain from yes. like, you know, 86 on, you know, like playing them. So it was so good. They had a good soundtrack, both in the original uh, soundtrack and also the songs that they used in their soundtrack, which was, uh, very uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, um, 70s, uh, not too much 80s, but, you know, it, it went that route. So a lot of good classics in there. Uh, trying to think in terms of where I was going with the movie. Oh, yes. Okay. When you were talking about the brothers, you know, and I said, well, together, you know, they, they're great, but separate, they also, they can get by. They made it seem like in this movie, like Luigi is not as, uh, Mario's not capable, but, but Luigi is less because he needs to set a good example for his brother. And is Mario the older brother? I never knew this portion of the yeah, story. Yeah, Mario's okay. the older brother. Um, They really treat Luigi like he's kind of an idiot. Uh, So, okay, there's that. But I really, 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 my favorite part of the movie, the thing that stands out to me by far, aside from the Peaches song, which we all know and love, and if you don't, you're living under a rock, is the fact that he was in the that other world, which I forget what they called it, the Dark Place? The Darklands? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Okay, yeah. and that was definitely Luigi's Mansion. And yeah, he had, yeah. <laughs> It's setting up a Luigi's Mansion movie, if if nothing else, for oh, sure. Oh, 100%. I mean, there's so much that can come from this movie. It's not just Luigi's Mansion. But, uh, yes, they, they definitely set up a Luigi's Mansion. I have watched my son play that. I have not played it myself. I love it. I think it's a great game. Uh, and it showed him how he has his own dreams. He has his own goals. Aside from, yes, he wants to be with his brother, but he does have his own life, too. So he doesn't mm -hmm. need his brother to be the, you know, the leader in his world. Um, I don't know. I'm just so excited. Oh, by the way, I saw this in D-Box seats, and I, I've told you guys about this before. <laughs> D-Box seats are the ones that kind of have the haptic movement, haptic feedback while you're in it. Uh, so the Mario Kart scene felt like you were in the game in VR. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that seemed like it would have been pretty cool uh, to have watched the the movie that way. Uh, but as far as like the voice actors in the movie, I have no complaints. Like Chris Pratt, like when I first heard the voice, I'm like, oh no, I don't know how I'm going to feel about this. But they gave the credit in the beginning of it to what him and Charlie Day could have sounded like if they'd put on like the, the Mario and Luigi accents from the games. And they actually knocked it out of the park. Like they sounded great in that, that short little video. Yeah. Um, but their voices actually are, are I, I love both of them. Um, obviously, Jack Black's like the best in the movie. Like yes. He's the standout. I didn't know it was him until I heard him singing. 
<laughs> he did a very, but he he did a very good job with it, and I just and I love everything outside of it too with him because he's like been the one most invested in it, and like it's and it's hilarious too because he's one of the he's the oldest probably I would imagine he has to be older than Charlie Day, but like he's the oldest in the in the cast or whatever, but like he's totally into the movie and the characters and. Um, I didn't realize this, but there's a video I saw on TikTok scrolling through. Did you realize that he, when he was a kid, he did the uh, original uh, uh, advertisement for Pitfall, the Atari game? Yes, only because you sent it to me, though. I did When I saw yeah. it, I was like, I did not fucking know that was him. I didn't know it was him either, and he was talking about it, and I just thought that was crazy. But, yeah, like, he's been, like, on the the red carpet. He's been, like, somebody came up to him, and they said, how did you get into the Bowser voice? And, like, he, he gives them, like, you know, the levels he had to drop his voice to to get there. And then whenever they kept talking to him, he's like, I'm still in Bowser voice. Shut up, you know, yeah. or whatever. And he had, like, you know, he was playing around with it a bit. Oh, my um, God. But uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, she's good as Peach. Oh, yeah, I uh, loved her as Peach. And people were like, oh, she wasn't a good Peach. Fuck you. She was great. Yeah, yeah I thought she was great in it. Like, I didn't have a problem with it. And, and she's been really into it, too. Like, basically cosplaying, like, Peach's outfit that, like, oh. you know, the, the the premieres of this stuff. You know, like the racing outfit or whatever from Mario Kart. Uh, Peach um, had some peaches in that scene. They were zooming in on that butt on the motorcycle. I was like, don't think I didn't catch that because I did. <laughs> um, the only one, I mean, Seth Rogen with his laugh. Yes, that is a very. Seth Rogen sounded point. like Seth Rogen playing himself. Yeah, he. but he always sounds that way. We didn't expect anything else. Actually, I was surprised at how he, he I expected to be annoyed every time that Donkey Kong said anything and it yeah. wasn't that way. Cranky Kong was the one that I was most uh, that I was disappointed with because Cranky Fred Kong. Armisen for some reason played like an old Jewish man and like for Cranky Kong and I did not ever get that out of the character and it's maybe because of where I'm at and what I'm used to <laughs> but Cranky Kong to me seemed like an old Appalachian grandpa that like screamed at the hills all the time that's what he seemed like to me in the game well I don't have anything to compare I didn't know Cranky Kong existed uh, apparently my kids did uh, you know look at apparently the awesomeness skipped a generation and I missed a lot of things growing up and I might have been held back a lot by my Catholic parents but, like, I guess I didn't start experiencing a lot of things till I met my husband. And then, of course, he introduced all that to the kids. And it's like, uh, I'm glad you guys know about this shit. Now, tell me where I'm at and what am I doing? Uh, yeah, I've I've played a lot of Nintendo stuff throughout the years just because, like I said, where, you know, I got that original system. So, I mean, like Donkey Kong Country, like the Super Nintendo to this day is still my favorite system of all the ones that's came out yeah so or and so the donkey kong country i definitely played those games i don't um, think i ever had a snes i only had an nes which i only played we got a free mario game with that or no it, no that was sega sega gave us a sonic game um i don't know what game i had i know we had a mario game i beat the ninja turtles game believe it or not i made it through that fucking underwater scene I don't know how you did. I gave up on that game. I'll tell you how I beat in quotation marks than in the Nintendo or the NES version of of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know how you have to blow in the cartridge whenever the system, the connectors start going bad on those old NESs. Yeah. Um, I was doing that one day whenever I was playing Turtles, and I reinserted the 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 cartridge back into the system. The game glitched, and it started showing the ending to me. 
Oh shit! And I was like, "Cool, I would have never seen this otherwise." Thank you. Oh my god, I don't, I don't remember the ending. I have to go back and look at that. But yes, I, I beat that game. You know, you would think as many times as I, I started having panic attacks playing Mario, and I forget which Mario game that I played that I would have given up on Turtles, but I didn't. Um, I think my dad showed me how to beat it. Uh, my dad figured it out, and I think he showed me. So there's that. I played Star Tropics, and I beat Star Tropics. Um, I love that game. That yeah. was good. I didn't know anybody else who's known that game. My husband didn't know what that game was. And I'm trying to think what else. I played a Final Fantasy game. Great. Okay, moving on. We got the SNES. <laughs> that We're not here the, to talk the, about that. Or not SNES. We got the Sega, and we're not here to talk about that, though. Yeah, the SNES had the best Final Fantasy games, in my opinion. I know a lot of people went gaga over Final Fantasy VII on the PlayStation, but I mean, it, you know, it. I still, um, I still hold up that Final Fantasy VI or three in the states is probably where it peaked as far as story went. I mean, it had such a grand story, even if the system couldn't really, you know, the graphics wise, yeah. it didn't, you know, couldn't really show it, but. Um, but if you're talking about just like Mario properties, like that Super Mario RPG that came out on the Super NES, like I was talking to Brandon about it at work, and like I mean, we would love it if there was some way that they could show it because that would be epic. It actually had a good story, and it it actually had a reason for Bowser and Mario to work together because they had to uh, in that. And and but I don't know that they have the rights to do that because Square partnered with Nintendo to make that and they might have the story rights. So yeah. I don't know if, if in the movies they can even do that as a story, but, um, but I, I told Brandon before he went to the movie, I was like, they have to do, you know how Marvel before their movies has the, the comic book scroll, you know, scroll yeah. that they have where the pages flip and they show like, I was like, they have to do that with like some kind of Mario. And if they don't have that, you know, do, 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 Oh do, yeah. Do. And it was there. I was like, you did it. You did everything I wanted with this movie just by starting it out that way. I can go home now. It's over everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Good night. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I'm I, just like everybody else. I'm really looking forward. They're going to have to up their game on story though. If they do the legend of Zelda, but if they can do that right and they get the right person to play link, I mean, it's going to be great. Oh my you know? God. The legend of Zelda. I forgot about that. I did play that too. I don't think I beat it though. I know we had the gold cartridge game. I don't know which one that yeah. one was. Uh, they did the gold version of like they've done a gold version of a lot of them to be honest with you because they started it with the original and then it was so popular they did it for sure on part two and then whenever the uh, link to the past which is my favorite of the series came out on the snes then they i think they might have went back and retro retroactively made like a gold cartridge cartridge for that one too like is like a gift to the fans or something so i don't know how much uh, the nes cost originally or the snes when it came out, I, I want to say that the NES was around a hundred to hundred and fifty dollars. Okay. It was significant price for what it was. I mean, back but in the it, day, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, I just find it very incredibly insulting that we, and I know it was for the times. I don't take that for granted, and it is still nostalgic. We still love it, even if we saw it today. But I find it incredibly insulting that the kids now have a Nintendo Switch. And they can play all those games and then more. There's newer versions of Link. Uh, I think my daughter has a game, Link the Awakening or something like that. Or uh, mm -hmm. Legend, it's a Legend yeah. of Zelda one. Yeah, Link's Awakening. It was originally on the Game Boy. And then they like they came out with a Game Boy Color version yeah. of it. 
and then they redid it completely and put it on the Switch where it's got like 3D graphics and all that. Yeah, and then my son has just about any Mario game you can imagine on his Switch, and I find it insulting how amazing the graphics are on that compared to what we could watch on a full fucking TV because obviously it was plugged <laughs> in. And granted, you could do that with the Switch too. You can do it handheld or uh, on the TV, and it's like, fuck you guys. You spoiled little shits. You don't even know what you got. <laughs> yeah, and then they have access to games like that, and they turn around and play these. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to bash them because some of them are fun, but these little independent games. That oh, just like, God. You know, Looks like the games and, we and played. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, they look like the games we used to play, and it's like, you have better games now. Why? Have you, know? you heard of the game Deltarune? Uh, no, I can't say that I have. Um, when you, when we're done with this, uh, you need to go look that up. The kids were really into that. You'll be, you, you'll be, you'll be slapped in the face. It's, it's basically the graphics we had back then, if not worse. Yeah. And the kids love it. Well, there, there's a lot of those retro clone games just because like the graphics are easier to achieve. I mean, you know, yeah. these independent, you know, but you can't blame them. I mean, they're, they're both tapping in nostalgia from like people like our age that like, you know, grew up with these things, but then like, it's, you know, they know that like, you know, kids now like don't really, they don't have like, I don't know. It seems like, you know, the kids are like disconnected as far as like having this like cultural, like they have to have the best systems, best graphics and all that, like some of us older gamers. So they're willing to try anything, which is good, really. I mean, they're open-minded about it, but like, uh, you know, they kind of tap into that a little bit too with some of these newer, like independent games. So, well, um, everybody, thank you for attending, uh, death hauler video games. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was just going to mention a few more movies that yeah. I've seen recently, uh, really quick. John Wick four is awesome. If you, if you can get out and watch it, um, it's, it's definitely worth seeing. Didn't you say uh, he doesn't say much in the film though? It's, I mean, no, he doesn't. It's about all action. Like if you hear Keanu say anything, it's like, yeah, like, <laughs> that's literally the extent of what he says through most of the movie. Oh my God. That's so funny. But I mean, just like Nicolas Cage, I guess he just makes it work, you know? He he does. I mean, well, you, you're going to the movie like looking for like intense, like action scenes and they deliver in spades on that. And then the, the characters that they've included in this one, like just amp the movie up that much more. I mean, they, they, they come up with some, the bad guys in the movie, uh, like a couple of them, are not are bad guys not by their own choice so like it's a fun dynamic they they're they're helping john out at times because they hate the guy that they're working for <laughs> but at the other times they they have to go against john because they don't have any options so you know it's it's a good back and forth um got like this special edition of city of the living dead which i it's going to be one of the movies we'll probably go into during zombie season it's a very weird movie it plays more like an hp lovecraft story than it does like an actual zombie movie because the zombies are like ghosts they pop up randomly in places and it was made by an italian director uh, lucio fulci i believe is the one that did that one and like uh the the italian take on zombies i mean just they they went with what romero set up i mean they're still like flesh eaters and all that but like then they they turn around and they enter 
they were more about like imagery than they were about like actual sensical plot. If you want to look at it that way. Yeah. So there's a lot of cool scenes in the movie and it's, it's almost like this twisted nightmare. Like you're watching it and you know how like nightmares, like there's no logic to anything. Like yeah. there's one scene that's really horrific and then you skip and you're another location and there's another rip. That's, that's how this movie's the whole way. Like I can't say that it's bad uh, and we'll get more into it during zombie seasons, but it, it's just, it's you're, you don't watch it for the plot. Cause there is none really. I mean, it's a very thin plot if you want to say anything about it it's a mindless um, zombie of a film basically yeah you, you could go that way with it <laughs> uh jacob's ladder oh my god like first time i'd ever seen that movie and uh I, and it, it, that movie now that has i mean it might seem nonsensical until you've watched the entire thing and that movie is a masterpiece i don't know what season even include that ends the problem because it's it's horror but it's 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 not it's it it's outside of it it's it's like its own genre or something i mean there there is movies that people reference that says that's like jacob's ladders whenever they what they're referencing and it's all because of how the plot rolls out but i don't really know where to include it so we might just have to cover it on its own at some point in the future but it's definitely worth covering it looks like it it, belongs with whatever genre we're going to have in the mouth of madness and maybe um that's that's more like lovecraft but this isn't i wouldn't say this is lovecraft it's but it's and but it almost fits in a little bit in a roundabout way now that you say that it's almost got a feel of something like uh event horizon in a way um you know it it, it's like I said, it's hard to describe. It's just, but uh, man, it, it's the opposite of see the living dead in the sense that, I mean, it, it's the through, I mean, it's got a lot of horrific scenes, scenes that seem like nightmares, but the plot is, is there. And it's, it's all throughout the movie and it's great. Like it's, it really makes you think whenever you get to the end of it. And then, yeah. Uh, and then I watched Martin. Uh, I got like the, it's, I guess it's the best source they can get on it. The movie still doesn't look that great. Uh, I mean, second sight films came out with a 4k, uh, uh, version of it and they said they restored it as much as possible. Of course, though, they found out that there was actually a, a lengthier version that, that they thought had been long destroyed, uh, that some like collector randomly had, and he basically wanted a, a king's ransom for it, so they weren't able to secure the rights. So this is the the only version we're going to get right now, at least of it. But it's like a, a it's a Romero film that's kind of strange in the sense that it's like it feels very very small and, and independent, more so than any of his dead movies ever did. But it came out in the middle of those, and it's it's like this small little story about this guy named martin who thinks he's a vampire and like he and he attacks people like with razor blades and stuff to like drain the blood out of them after he's like drugged them or whatever to keep them docile but then like his uncle feeds into it so you know by his uncle's like this religious freak who tells him that he is a vampire and that he will uh he will make sure that when he kills Martin, that his soul is prepared to go to heaven. He, he has to, or something like that. So it's like, did Martin get that way? I mean, they, they hint throughout the movie that Martin got that way, maybe because he was raised in a family that always told him that he was, you know, this creature of the night. So it's more like it was, you know, his delusions came upon him because like his family forced it on him rather than he was actually that way to begin with. But like it, it kind of, it's a weird movie. It's, it's, I mean, but, 
And I don't, I mean, there's like in the middle of it, it's got a, it picks up and I, and I actually enjoyed parts of it really well. But then there's other parts of it that is kind of a slow, just like slice of life type movie for the character, even though he's like doing these things and it's, I don't know. It, it's not like my favorite Romero movie. I can't say that at all. I've heard other people like, you know, go on and rave about it, but it's, I mean, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen by the man, but it's definitely not up there with like day of the dead, which is my favorite, you know, zombie movie that, that Romero ever did. So, yeah. uh, but it's technically a vampire movie. We might cover it during vampire season. Cause it is weird. I mean, it is a different type of vampire. I don't know. We, we might come back to it at that point, but, um, anything that you've seen besides Evil Dead Rise that you want to talk about before we get into the, the main podcast? Um, not that I can remember at the moment, no. So, because I'm boring. Okay. Well, uh, let's uh, let those folks in. Let's get this thing started. Let's do it. Did you not hear the opening music? Uh, I just I heard the end of it just now. I was oh. getting ready to start. So, <laughs> yeah. Surprise! Um, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Death Holler. I'm your host, the Reverend Doctor Death, and joining me as always is the Dream Master herself, La Urena. Pulled anybody else into your strange prophetic nightmares, Urena? Just my dog. Like I literally do. Now I don't think I'm pulling him in the dream. For real. He's just in the dreams. But he does prevent me from doing stupid shit in my dreams. So I think that shit is legit. I really do. Well, I mean, if if good Jason Borkvies or whatever you, you, you name the character can uh, or Barkvies can help you out, then there you go. So it's a certified good boy, Jason Borkies. <laughs> Well, there's a source of contention there. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Uh, in this episode, we continue our breakdown of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. This time we cover what many consider to be the lowest point in the series, at least with regards to parts five and six. However, to make up for the low kill counts and subpar stories, we do get some of the most inventive kill scenes we're ever going to see this season. So I suppose there's a bright side to every dark cloud. Um, so move that stack of old comics. Make sure, make you a nice place to chill out on the old waterbed and power up that old NES because this time we're playing with power. <sighs> <laughs> and if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you could take the time to like, comment, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you prefer. It helps us get more visibility on podcast listings and helps us grow. Also, consider following us on social media. You can find us on TikTok and Twitter under Death Holler Pod, and we can be found on Instagram and Facebook under Death Holler Podcast. We appreciate everyone who listens and hope you enjoy the show. But first, let's attack some bees. What is that? What is that? What is it? Oh, no, not the bees. Not the bees. Ah! Nice. Not the bees. <laughs> this episode, we're covering Alone in the Dark from 1982. Uh, Taglines for this one, when the lights go out, the terror begins. Uh, 
Directed by Jack Shoulder, who, if you remember, was the director of Friday or Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. So there's that. Um, he directed the gayest of the Nightmare films. Uh-uh. Uh, written by Jack Shoulder, Robert Shea, and, and Michael Harpster. Um, we have uh, principal players, Jack Palance, who plays Frank Hawes, uh, or Hawks, the uh, crazy POW. Uh, been in a few horror movies uh, without warning. Um being one of them. He was also, of course, Curly in City Slickers 1 and 2, uh, played in Batman 89. He was in Tango and Cash and then also in Young Guns. Um, I don't. Have you ever seen a movie with Jack Palance before, Urena? I don't, I don't think so. You didn't watch any of the City Slicker movies then? Oh, wait, yes. Okay, I know who you're talking about now. Yes. Okay. It's hard for me to watch Jack Palance because clearly the man had, like, advanced COPD, like, later in his life when he was filming some of these movies that I'm more familiar with him in. And, like, he, it, he's, it, it's just hard for me to watch when him, him whenever he's portraying the characters because he's, you can tell he's, like, struggling for breath, you know, a lot. And it just, I don't know, it just... That just something that, I don't know maybe my something about me OCD or whatever like I fixate on it anytime I see him he even has like in medical terminology it's a tangent but like whenever you get a really advanced COPD like the like somebody who's been a smoker for years they start to out of necessity they start a way of like breathing where they kind of form like an O with their mouth whenever they're trying to get like air in and like it and I can't remember the top, the term for it but it's a there's a specific medical term for that type of breathing and like Jack Palance has it like when you see him in movies um and I probably ruin that for people that don't obsess on that <laughs> stuff but I'm sorry it just it, it stands out when I see him wow uh Dwight Schultz plays Dr. Dan Potter who is uh, a new psychologist at the facility in the movie and a family man he's our protagonist uh Deborah Headwall plays Nell Potter Dan's wife Elizabeth Ward plays Lila Potter Dan's daughter Lee Taylor Allen plays Tony Potter, which is Dan's hippie head case sister. Uh, Philip Clark plays Tony Tom Smith, the handsome nuclear protester. Brent Jennings plays Ray Curtis, the third floor caretaker. Steve Dash plays Dr. Barkin, uh, who had a car, and that's how the, the four main killers uh, escaped from the mental asylum. Uh, and if you remember, Steve Dash was one of our uh, Jasons, and I believe it was in part three. Um, he played the the one of the one of the two stunt men who put trade Jason in that movie. Nice. Uh, uh, Ralph Corrado Jr. plays uh, the looter who's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Keith Redden plays Billy uh, Bunky's love toy. Uh, Carol Le- Levy plays Bunky, who is uh, the Potter's hot nanny, and just like any hot nanny back in the late seventies, early eighties, she was um, uh, less worried about the kids she was protecting, more worried about the sex that she could be having. Uh, while the the parents were away, and with a name like uh, Bunky, <laughs> uh, Gordon Watkins plays Detective Burnett, who's the local popo. Donald Pleasance plays Doctor Leo Bain, who's the hippie psychologist in this. It's kind of funny because he plays almost the he plays like the the camera negative version of um, uh, Doctor Loomis, you know, from the the uh, Halloween movies. Instead of being like this uh, obsessive, like, you know, 
very like we this guy has to be killed type character in this movie it's it's he was they all it's almost like they they wanted to play i mean they specifically chose him to play the opposite type of character because he's very he's like oh even with the hardcore killers that he's like you know gotten the third floor he's like no they're just misunderstood we've got to understand their journey and 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 just find them they're lost and we need to pull them back to the light you know that type of character <laughs> Whereas Dr. Loomis is like, no, I got to fucking kill this guy. Give me a pistol. Where, yeah. where's, Je- where, where's Michael at? Let me kill him. You we know? got a reason with them. <laughs> uh, Erlen Van Litz plays uh, Ronald Fatty Elster, who's an obese child molester. Gross. Um, yep, yep. Uh, I got a question mark here down for John the Breeder Skaggs. Uh, he's actually, I mean, I I know the actor in the movie, but I'm not going to reveal it at this moment in time. If uh, I'll I'll get into that a little bit later, and I'll let, give you spoilers if you want to watch the movie and be surprised. But uh, and then Martin uh, Landau plays Byron Preacher Sutcliffe, who's a religious zealot and a burn bug. He's uh, he likes to go. He actually is so into religion, he likes to burn churches down. That's that's kind of his craziness that he has. I mean, you know, I get it. <laughs> uh, he was uh, he's done several things for uh, uh, Tim Burton. He was in the Frank and Weenie. He was a voice in Frank and Weenie the cartoon or yeah. the animation. Uh, he was in Sleepy Hollow, and he was also in Without Warning with Jack Palance. And then we have Lynn Shay. Of course, Lynn Shay's in this because, I mean, it's a New Line movie, and I, and I can't remember. I don't know if she's like – I want to say I read that she's like a sister to Rob Shay, but, any, but it, married or a sister, however she's related to him, she's in like every New Line movie at some point. And, uh, and she's making her obligatory New Line cameo in this as one of the receptionists, so – uh, synopsis, Dr. Leo Bain is the hippie in charge of a mental asylum housing some very dangerous patients. Believing that they are all on their own journey and capable of rehabilitation if not treated as criminals, Leo's only security system relies upon the presence of electricity to trigger the auto-locking doors and window shutters uh, when one of the men on the level three tries to escape. This is all explained to the new psychiatrist taking the place of the last counselor to watch over level three. Of course... You know, in movie logic, uh, since they introduced that concept, there's a local blackout. And the four men, a crazed prisoner of war, an obese child molester, a religious arsonist, and a prolific woman-murdering serial killer, all get loose and make their way to the new psychologist's home. Um, That's because uh, Jack Pounce's character is convinced that Dan Potter has killed their old psychologist and he is uh, trying to and, and trying to insinuate himself into their lives now, and so it's a, it's incumbent upon the four men to kill him, and you know to to avenge the death of the previous counselor, even though he's still alive and working in another state. Uh, but you're talking about crazy people, so yeah. I mean, uh, let's see. Throats are ripped open, houses are set on fire, and crossbow bolts are constantly flying from the nearby woods. Turn the lights off and watch if you dare. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Body counts 12, which is respectful. Oh, that is, res- yeah. Because some of these Freddy uh, movies Re- we're going to review, they're low. Some of them are below five. Oh, my five. God. They're so low that they barely qualify as slasher yeah. movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have Ray Curtis, uh, who uh, who's, uh, works in the, in the mental asylum as one of the orderlies, has his spine snapped in half by fatty. Nice. Uh, Dr. Barkin is thrown out of a car by Fatty. Whoa. Uh, the, the looter, who's in the wrong place at the wrong time, gets his throat ripped out by the bleeder with a gardening fork. 
And um, they call him the bleeder because every time he kills somebody, his nose bleeds. Um, you know, kind of like the character in Valentine. Yeah. You know, in a I sense. was just thinking that. Yeah. Um, the postman is ran over by Hawks with a van, and that seems almost it's 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 funny, but it's fun to watch at the same time because this postman is getting chased by them all in a van, these four psychos, and he keeps telling them he's like waving them, he's like go around, go around, and of course they don't want to go around because the easiest way to get access to Potter's house is for one of them to be dressed up as the local mailman. So they bypass him at one point and he thinks that he's safe because he's ran off the side of the road. And then Fox, and then uh, Hawks just comes out of nowhere and just runs over him. Like, it's like, Nope, you're, you're still dead, sir. Thank you. Um, Billy, uh, gets his throat slit by the preacher with the machete because he's hiding under the bed as Billy and Bunky are doing the deed. Billy uh, and Bunky are getting funky. Yeah, getting funky on that bed, and then then Billy gets his throat slit. Bunky runs out of the room, uh, getting away from the preacher, only to meet face-to-face with Fatty, and he's, like, twice her size, so in both ways, length and width, I guess. So he, like, just picks her up off of the ground and, like, you know, chokes her, you know, that way until she's dead. Uh, I Um, saw a picture of that when I looked it up, and... um, it's funny because uh, she's only wearing panties and a t-shirt, but she looks like she's got a pretty big front bulge, and I thought it was a dude for a minute. It's not. It's her. <laughs> she's got a fat chalupa is what she's got, even though she's not uh, fat. So, <laughs> Yeah. Um, if it was nowadays, you'd have to be questioning that. But, yeah. you know, back, back in those days, they, uh, you could be fairly sure that they were, well, outside of uh, a few movies that were explicitly about cross-dressing killers, I guess, you yeah. know, which is its own genre. Uh, she definitely was packing a puffy taco, so. <laughs> well, she was in the middle of some business, so it might have been also because of that, too. I mean, that, that might have part of it, but uh, Detective Burnett is shot in the chest by Hawks with a crossbow. Uh, basically, anytime somebody tries to walk outside, which is... I always hate it in movies when there's no established reason why the characters can't escape. But just like we talked about in Evil Dead Rise, they give a good reason that movie that oh, they yeah. can't. And, and in this movie, they do too because anytime one of the main characters tries to step out, a crossbow like literally flies past their head. God damn! So uh, I mean, you you can't run out there and just get you know that way. So you got to do something else. Um, Doctor Leo Bain, who shows up at the house finally at this point in the movie, is hacked to death by the preacher with an axe. Uh, and he's still, and, and they, they go out there to save him. Like they have a moment to try to save him, like Potter and the rest of them. And he tells them, I mean, still being a hippie, he's like, no, he's like, this man is just, he's in pain. Let me try And, you know, of course, preacher hacks him to death. So there you go. Uh, fatty, uh, gets stabbed in the back by the bleeder with a cleaver and hammered <laughs> in further by Dan with a baseball bat. Holy um, shit. John the Bleeder Skaggs, and this is a spoiler, folks, so don't listen to this next part, who's also Tom Smith, the attractive guy that uh, Dan's sister met at the nuclear war protest, oh. is the same person. Oh, and, okay. and because right after he goes fatty and, and Dan has left the room to see because he's heard some rumblings that, you know, uh, that uh, the preacher is like set fire to a part of their house, and so he's went to deal with that. While he is holding Tony, uh, the Tom suddenly starts bleeding from the nose, just like the end scene of uh, Valentine. And we know that we've one of our killers who's disappeared the entire movie after he rips the guy's throat out with a gardening trowel is um, 
is in fact the the handsome guy that we that was at the protest. So there you go. Um, the bleeder's been with them the entire time, and they didn't even know it. Um, <clears throat> uh, he's stabbed in the stomach by a nail with a knife. Uh, that's how he gets taken out. Uh, and Byron, the preacher Sutcliffe, is the final one that's left in the movie, is beaten to death by Dan with a fire extinguisher. Now, you'll notice that uh, Hawks was never killed. That's because there's a scene toward the end of the movie where Hawks, Hawks has has them all. He's got the crossbow in his hand, uh-huh. and it's right after they've killed Preacher. And um, Dan is like trying to reason with him because that he, I mean, he's going to get shot and killed otherwise. And Hawk and he tells him, and Hawks reveals he's you know why he's been, why they've been killing him. It's like you killed our previous you know uh, counselor, and he's like, no, I didn't. And then it just so happens the electricity comes back on. <laughs> And on the TV screen, their previous counselor is being interviewed because they, they've heard about the breakout on the local news. And when he sees that, Hawks lets him go because, like, you know, he, he you know, he's convinced at that point that the counselor really did live. Um, now, there is a coda at the end of the movie, like uh, right before the credits roll, where it's later on that night, they're trying to recover, or, you know, the police are dealing with all the looting that went on in the town during the blackout and everything else. And Hawks happens to go to the, um, the punk bar, uh, uh-huh. that, that, that Tony, uh, Dan's sister, uh, took him to earlier in the movie. And he meets this punk rock chick and she, uh, and, and she's talking to him and she, I mean, she's talking to him like she's almost hitting on him, but like it's, you know, and he's got like a pistol and like she, you know, and she's, you know, being nihilistic punk rocker, she's like, you know, walks up to it and basically puts it against her throat. And it's like, I bet you wouldn't do that. And then he gives a look like he's getting ready to start killing again, you know, and then the movie kind of cuts off. So that's how the movie ends. Um, I actually, uh, you know, kind of just review of the movie. I actually like it. It's, it's interesting because like, um, Obviously, Fatty's the most despicable. I mean, child molester. Yeah, kill that motherfucker. I mean, and he has a scene with Dan's daughter in the movie, and you really get worried for a second that something bad's going to happen to that Ooh. little girl. Um, because they're all alone at the house. Dan's like at the insane asylum trying to figure out what happened. The pre, you know, to and what where the guys are at, and his and his wife and the sister were at the nuclear war protest, and they've been arrested, and that's where they meet Tom or the bleeder. And so she's all by herself with Fatty in the house. And it's just like, oh, fuck, this is going to go bad. It's just so funny um, that he's called Fatty. I'm just, Every time you're saying it, I'm just dying. <laughs> well, I mean, it, he does have a name, but everybody calls him Fatty, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the preacher by uh, Landau is is one of the highlights just because, like, you know, he there's a there's a nightmare scene at the beginning of the movie that is uh, it's like it kind of gives you an insight into his character like he's dreaming like he's just and i thought the movie's going to start out really bad because of this it's like the acting is super flat like the, he's he's randomly at like some like 1950s-esque like diner somewhere in the middle of you know any town america he sits down at the counter he orders the food there's a guy next to him they have like a, a very just like short back and forth conversation it's very flat like they barely put anything into it and then there's a fire that flames up in the back of the 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 diner where the cook's at and then out walks uh, donald pleasance playing like this fry cook character and he starts like going in this tirade about like the sins of hell will be delivered upon you know and like and so and then it cuts out and it's the preacher and like he's you know like had had a nightmare so it's like you get and then the rest of the movie he's like 
instead of being flat, he's like the not, I mean, he's not overacting in, in a bad sense, but he's like out there, you know, like with all of his acting. And so it, it kind of sets up that like in his, in like in his mind, he's just being perfectly calm and rational. And like, it's, and it's just like, you know, the, the, the religious zealotry or whatever comes to him, you know, from like outside sources or something. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a neat way to introduce the movie and like he, his character's interesting. And, but my favorite character in the movie was probably uh, Jack Palance's because there's a scene outside on the grounds of the asylum, right after Dan's introduced to everyone where um, Hawks is talking to him and like, he's very calm and he's talking to Dan and like, he, he explains to him, he's like, I know that I'm messed up and mentally. He said, but I try my hardest. And you know, he's like, and he, he repeats some of the stuff that Leo said about how they're on their journey. But the way he says it, you almost feel sympathy for him. It's like, he knows that he's a, a psychotic killer, but he doesn't want to be. It's just like, he's trapped inside of his own mind. So I like that aspect of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's just strange, too, because it's a slasher movie, but there's four slashers in it, and they all got their own thing going on, you know. So um, not a bad movie by any means. I, I actually recommend it. I mean, it, it, it's a little slow at times, but it the, it's not slow enough that it ever drags down the movie. It always picks back up with, like, some scene either with a preacher going out there with his, like, you know, the sins of, you know, whatever, or the, the bleeder shows up at some point. Like, I mean, there's always something going on in the movie so yeah um if i was gonna give it a nick cage rating i would give it the it could happen to you uh it's a decent concept and and a fun watch i mean it's uh, nothing that i'm gonna ever like go out and like be like this is the greatest thing ever but like it's i mean there's i could see why there's a lot of people out there that kind of hold this up as like what kind of an underrated like lost slasher movie from the 80s so Okay, uh, probably not going to watch it unless you make me, but okay. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, if you ever, I mean, if you ever had any downtime, and I know you don't, then <laughs> it's, it's it's worth a watch. So Sometimes anyways. I catch these things, especially if I just pop shutter on and just, like, hit play. That's what we try to do sometimes. I don't usually make it through sometimes, but uh, the kids are, are getting a really great experience. So, you know, there's that. Um, but let's get back into the Freddy of it all and, and start up with the Nightmare on Elm Street. This time we're going with part four, the Dream Master from 88. Uh, Taglines, there's several of them here. Uh, are you ready for Freddy? Okay, that's uh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than some of the other ones. Oh, it for sure. Uh, you shouldn't have bur- uh, buried me. I'm not dead. And then the biggest nightmare of them all. But was which- it? No, we'll get to that. I, yeah, there's there's some debate on that. Uh, directed by Rennie Harlan, who we've previously discussed in this podcast, who uh, uh, as a tag of the bees for prison. Um, written by Wes Craven, the characters at least. He didn't actually have a hand in this script in any way, shape, or form. William uh, Kotzwinkle and Brian Hedgeland uh, wrote the story, and Hedgeland and Jim Wheat is Scott Pierce. And uh, Ken Wheat as Scott Pierce wrote the screenplay. And so I found this out in the trivia. Anytime that Jim and Ken Wheat wrote a movie that they didn't want, like, their names officially on because they thought it was kind of a bad movie, they always put Scott Pierce as, like, their alter ego name. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> a lot of confidence they had in this one. Ooh. Um, 
Music by uh, Craig Saffin. Uh, budget of twelve million. It made forty nine point four million. I mean, that's pretty. Yeah, that's that's not, it's not lighting the world on fire like the Scream movies did, but that's respectable. Yeah, it is respectable for sure. That's how I was thinking of it. <laughs> Uh, principal players, uh, Lisa Wilcox plays Alice Johnson, her final girl. Mm. Uh, and, uh, she was also in part five. We'll get to that in a, in a little bit. Um, maybe probably I would say for the, the listeners, that'd be the next episode when we break these up. Uh, uh she was also in the fat boys video. Are you ready for Freddie? <laughs> uh, she was in savage and also red hollow. Uh, and, and she's gorgeous now. I don't know if you've seen like pictures of her, but like it's, she, she had a glow up is all I can say, because like, I didn't think she's okay in this movie, but she is a knockout now. Like, I don't know. Well, I didn't think she was ugly in the film, but she aged very well. (laughs) She did. Fucking teach me the ways. Yeah, they had her on that uh, behind the scenes, like uh, Never Sleep Again, uh, you know, documentary. And anytime she showed up, I'm like, God Almighty, that she's gorgeous. Like, I mean, yeah, just I mean, and like even like the castmates in the movies that were around her, like the 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 some of the female actresses who were technically hotter in the movie back in the day, like they, I mean, they aged okay. I mean, nothing wrong with them, but it's like night and day. Like she just, I don't know. Um. Robert England, of course, back as Freddy Krueger. I don't know that you can technically make a uh, nightmare movie without him. We'll get to that whenever we talk about the remake uh, eventually. Uh, Danny Hassel plays Dan Jordan, uh, the hunky jock in the movie. He was actually and, a nice uh, guy, shockingly. Yeah, yeah. Norm- normally the jock is always the <laughs> asshole in the movie, but you know, he, he's definitely the nice jock. Uh, of course, comes back for part five. Uh, Ken Sagos plays Roland Kincaid back from part three, playing the strong dream warrior. Rodney Eastman plays Joey Crusoe again as the horny dream warrior. Ooh. <laughs> uh, Tuesday night is playing Kristen Parker. She's uh, uh, filling in for uh, Patricia Arquette in this movie. And there's a lot of debate on that one about why that happened and if it should have happened, but uh, she is the psychic of the movie and the former final girl. Uh, she would come back though in New Nightmare when we uh, review that movie, and uh, she was in one of the Amityville movies later on, Amityville Moon. Which, if you Amityville gets some stupid places because it's not technically a name that they could copyright. So there's all kind of, I mean, independent filmmakers are coming out with Amityville movies, you know, with different names. I sent you one the other day. Amityville Backpack is one that's coming out here soon. And that's how stupid it gets. I can't with that one. Absolutely cannot. <laughs> Uh, and then somebody I know who's like big, he's associated. He's like a good friend of the dead pit guys. Like, but he's got like, he loves the most horrible. Like if you've got like a, it's not, he goes by curly jaws. And if you, if you watch a film franchise, he, he likes the worst movie in the series. So like for the jaws series, for instance, like everybody agrees. I think it's like part five is the worst jaws movie that was ever made. Like just the worst. That's his favorite that, you know, that's his thing. Like he, what he likes the ones that are shit, you know, of the series. And then he tells you the ones that everybody likes the best are the, the garbage ones. Like, yeah. you know, the original jaws, for instance, but he made one called uh, Amityville curly jaws. And it, it's as bad as you could imagine, but he did it with like a tongue in cheek type thing. So it's actually kind of funny, but regardless, um, uh, we have Toy Newkirk playing Sheila Kopecki, who is the nerdy girl, um, and apparently not black enough, but we'll get to that in the <laughs> trivia. <clears throat> Andrus Jones plays Rick Jones, 
um, brother to Alice, kung fu enthusiast. Uh, he was in the Night Trap video game. Oh, uh, yeah. Brooke, Night Trap. I like that. Uh, Brooke Thies plays Debbie Stevens, who's the hot gym rat in the movie. And uh, she was on Just the Ten of Us. And if you can remember, and I'll get back, then I'll I'll bring it up again in the trivia. But, like, uh, Heather Langenkamp was on Just the Ten of Us. Uh, there was uh, one, I think, the little girl that, that pops up in all these movies, like in the dreams, is, is from Just the Ten of Us. So, Apparently, they new line and just the ten of us sitcom like just shared actresses like left and right. Uh, we have um, at least from my point of view, uh, uh, you know, uh, Death Holler favorite Linnea Quigley uh, <laughs> pops up in the movie as this one of the souls in Freddie's chest toward the end of the movie, and she's just there to show her boobies off, folks. That's well, all yeah. she does. Is this is the one with the fifty foot Freddie, isn't it? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Hope Marie Carlton plays the pinup girl and she's just there for boobies. Uh, and then Jake, Jason, the dog is, uh, the bad puppers. He is and, not. Uh, we're going to debate that here soon, but anyways, he is a synopsis. certified good boy. Synopsis. After surviving their ordeal at the mental asylum, the last of the dream warriors are just trying to live out their lives as ordinary teenagers. Through a series of unfortunate and insane circumstances, however, the Springwood Slasher is brought back to, to life and Freddy claims the lives of the last Elm Street children. Freddy, seeing an opportunity to expand his collection of souls, goads Kristen, goads Kristen uh, to use her dream powers to call in Alice so he can attack the rest of Springwood's children. Waterbeds are deadly honeypots. Sucking face is not all it's cracked up to be, and all the workouts in the world won't save you from a roach motel. Uh. <laughs> body count seven and yes that is down from like some of our bigger movies that we've had but that's not bad it's, yeah it's, it's not. still respectable it's still above five it's it's above three which we're going to get into in the next couple of movies Oof. believe it or not well i mean how much what is it to take to be a serial killer it's more than two so it's like three or more three is like the bare minimum or yeah. something yeah so like you have to there's a it's above the minimum you know <laughs> I almost feel like that scene from uh, you know like I can imagine Freddie being like to the fans like you know that scene from Office Space so you know I have to wear 15 pieces of flair and then we're like well I mean 15 is the minimum but yeah. uh, we recommend more you know yeah when... seriously we recommend more <laughs> Freddie uh, the seven people killed we have Roland Kincaid stabbed in the gut three times with the finger knives uh, Jolin, uh, Joey is killed, pulled underwater and killed with finger knives. Underwater uh, she, or under covers? I'm just kidding. Uh, both, both, technically. Kristen is burned to death in a furnace fire. Now, that's <laughs> that. That's a pretty gruesome. Yeah, movie, that was fucked up. And especially the fact that she is like the final girl from the previous movie. I feel like she got disrespected. You know, there's a lot of stuff that could be said about how Adrian King died when she came back for, you know, Friday part two, where she was just killed off, you know, at the beginning of the movie by, you know, uh, I think us getting like the ice pick to the neck or what, or, or to the head or whatever. But at least she went out that way. Like, I mean, literally Freddie was just like, I mean, playing around with like Kristen yeah. here and this and just tossed her in the fire and just burned her to death. Like, I mean, yeah. She, and was still able to talk to her. Dirty. He had multiple times when he picked her up to like <clears throat> stab her in the gut, stab her in the neck. I mean, like fuck her up. And he's just like, Nope. Into the furnace you go. Yep, it just burnt the shit out of her. Which, um, like him, so I guess. I don't know. 
Yeah. Uh, Sheila Kopecki uh, has her breath and potentially organs sucked out by Freddy uh, in a dream. Uh, Rick Johnson is stabbed in the gut with a disembodied finger knives. We'll get to that, but that's probably one of the shittiest kills yes. in any of these movies. It's like they ran out of money in the budget or something. Uh, uh, they actually did. You're, you're oh. 100%. That's the reason. <laughs> um, Debbie Stevens is turned into a cockroach and crushed. That's probably one of our best deaths that yeah. we'll ever get to. And then Freddy Krueger himself is torn apart by souls. That's a pretty good way for the for the slasher to die, to be honest with you. I, I got to give this movie credit for that. Yeah. Quotes. And these are mostly going to be Freddy's because, like, this is the point. You know, we went from, like, we went from one and two where Freddie was just kind of like a demonic, you know, like presence. He, he said a few things, but he like, wasn't like more of a comedic, you know, person to in part three where it's like the perfect balance where he's like very, you know, like nasty and cruel to the kids. But then he has like that perfect line. Welcome to primetime bitch. You know, like that whole thing. And in this movie, they just went, way into the the realm of like well everybody like prime time so let's like come up some more one-liners for him so uh with regards to the roach motel freddy you can check in but you can't check out uh <laughs> um he when he first sees alice welcome to wonderland alice that's so uh, dumb <laughs> <laughs> uh to joey how's this for a wet dream yes that was that's my pick sorry <laughs> Uh, of course, to Alice, whenever at one point, Alice, come to daddy. Um, he's always doing that. I mean, they mentioned on, on um, Never Sleep Again how he originally started out as a pedophile and then they removed that because they didn't want that. There was a thing going on in California time where somebody was, had been accused of that, so they didn't want to work it in the movie, but oh, it was yeah. always kind of understood. You get it throughout these movies, like the way, especially in the scene where Kristen, he first, and she's on the beach, she's trying to go to her happy place. She's on the beach, and then Freddie shows up, and he kind of does, I think he even does the thing where he splits his, like, you know, the fingers apart and, like, was licking between them at her or something before he puts on, like, the sunglasses. Like, I mean, he's, you know, I mean, it's, it's hinted that he's molesting these girls in their dreams in addition to everything else that he's doing. So, um, the jock in response to Sheila's inhaler. Hey, baby, you're sucking on the wrong nozzle. <laughs> and then Debbie in response to that. Hey, yo, needle dick. I bet you're the only male in the school suffering from penis envy. <laughs> oh, my God. I got a couple uh, that I thought I didn't see on your list. But uh, they're, and they're kind of they're just dumb. But it's like it's because these are just Freddy only. But uh, want to suck face. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, of course. Want to suck face. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, you know, when he has to throw in a bitch, because Freddie has to say the word bitch, and I don't know if it's like that for the rest of the films. I have my list. But you think you've got what it takes? I've been guarding my gate for a long time, bitch. He has to say bitch. It's just... (laughs) He just has to say bitch. Um, But the dumbest one of all, but I was dying, was Sayonara Rickson. (laughs) <laughs> i didn't even catch that because that whole scene when it gets to that part like i just like oh my god I, I think i'd like go to my phone because it's it's such a non-death and we'll get into the reason why it is in the trivia but like it's it, it i mean he's literally being attacked by an invisible freddy so basically he's reacting to nothing yes. and then like you know and then like the glove flies at him and then like blast him out the window as it's stabbing him to death that's how they kill him so um 
Yeah, um, the bitch thing I just laugh at because they really picked up on that on Rick and Morty. Yeah. Whenever they went into the dream and they had Scary Terry, and he's like, you can run, but you can't hide, bitch. You know, like every time he said something, it was bitch at the end of it. And I'm like, they know what they're doing. They, yeah. They, 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 they understood the assignment. Um, all right. Discussing the movie, visuals. Um, I can't, I mean, when they did the, the, the special effects in this, they did them right. I mean, leaving aside Rick's death, the other ones are quality, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of every single one. Uh, well, you okay. have jo- you have Joey under the bed in the in the that one under, was, in, inside the waterbed. That, that was my pick. I mean, it's not like it's not. I mean, as graphic as Johnny Depp's, like you know, blood coming out out of the middle of the bed, but still, it's a it's a cool effect. You know, especially they had like the light behind him, so it like silhouetted like his dead body floating around inside of there. Yeah, the, and the how Roach do you Motel fucking death. explain that? Well, that's the one thing that that's the thing that aggravates me because everybody else in the movie, however they die in the dream world, they just seem to have just died of a heart attack in real life. Yes, you know, like but this one would um, fuck you up for life, and not only that, but the Rochemuch girl, you never see her again. So at least it's it's realistic. You don't know is she still alive out there? Did she run away or did she get kidnapped? Is she dead? Like you never really know. She's just crushed in a fucking Roach Motel, you know. Yeah, it, it's. I think it's kind of assumed in her like reality that like, like she either like because she was working out at the time that like the she went to sleep for a split second and they ended up in the nightmare. So either she was had her like windpipe crushed by like the weight that she was lifting, which happened, you know is a reason that you have spotters. Yeah. Or or she happened to like her like or if they would have found her body, he would have been like all the limbs would have been snapped off yes. or something. Cause there's at one point that he's like breaking her arms backwards to yes. expose like the roach particles or whatever that's coming out. So yeah, it was, I mean, it was um, cool. It was a cool death. Um, but the one thing that I don't like about this movie visually is that even though it, it has some cool deaths, like the way that it was filmed looks a little cheap at times. It I don't looks know how very to explain cheap. it. Um, that's, I mean, I guess I wouldn't have said it at first because at the end of the day, this is like it's number four in the series, so it's getting tired is how the only way I could say it, um, which is what you don't want to do in these movies is get tired. But, yeah, it's getting tired, and yes, you're right. It looked super cheap. There was some okay scenes that looked okay. I think when he was throwing – maybe because there was more light, so when he was throwing it in the furnace, it looked a little bit better. Um, when good boy uh, Jason Borkies was peeing and had the fire going, I think whenever there was light, it was a little bit better. But when the dark scenes were not great. Well, that, that it's funny you say that because the light was both blessing and curse. I agree with you. And the scenes where, like, she's lit up it- – Chris has been thrown into the furnace, the the dog and all that. I agree. Those look good. Yeah. But at other times in the movie at the school, whenever they were showing stuff, it, they were doing like the, almost like some of the scenes were like fisheye lens type things that looked more like Sam Raimi than they did like Nightmare. And they didn't really fit. I didn't feel like they, they, and they looked out of place and the way that they were lit, that's the part that bothered me because they, they had that natural, like cheap lighting, you know, at those yeah. times. They didn't, it, it, you know, like we talk about with independent movies where it looks like you just took a camera like on your phone went outside and recorded it i mean there's nothing wrong with how that looks necessarily but it's it's not a film look it's a you know you you and your brain kicks in and says okay this is cheap like it you recognize the difference you know the one that um, stands out to me is when uh what's her name's about to suck face with freddie 
and she's in the classroom. There's a lot of quotation mark natural light. I don't know that it is natural or not. But, but it looks that way, yeah. Yeah, but it doesn't. It looks cheap to me. That's so why, yeah, I'm, it could I'm be saying generic. it's on the cheaper end. Yeah. yeah, and not only that, but was it because it's a dream sequence? You know how I told you how a lot of the dream sequences during the day have that blurry look? Mm-hmm. But then at the end, and I'm not sure if it was this one or if I'm mistaken, another movie, they're walking away during the day, and it still had that fuzzy look to it, and I couldn't tell if they were dreaming or not, and I didn't think anything bad happened. I can't that that if you're talking about that the end stuff like I don't even remember I don't think it was this one because I think this one ended like shortly after uh, Freddy's like torso scene which that's another good scene special effects oh wise that, that scene looks awesome the making of that is literally the best and I want to say it was fucking Mrs Quigley herself uh, that was showing herself getting painted with the stuff that they put on them to make them slithery and slimy and she's wearing like a bodysuit. And uh, she had some knockers on her. The the actress I that I remember them filming it had to have oh, been yeah. her. Oh yeah, she she did yes. And uh, it's funny because they showed it on Never Sleep Again. They were filming that and they wasn't watching it too closely. And it was kind of loose near the top. And like while she was really getting into it and really pressing those knockers against like that stretchy stuff, the whole thing collapsed with her and like the two or three more people that were behind her. Oh my god! You know, in, in that scene. They said nobody got hurt, but like, and I mean, and it's funny because she was, and the only reason she's in this movie is she was dating the uh, the guy who did the uh, the makeup effects yeah. at the time. So, um, I bet they had an argument later that night. I'm just going to throw that out there. I mean, because you know she's doing the scene, he's the one in charge of it, and then like she, you know, and the whole thing collapses on top of her because so. of her massive <laughs> knockers. <laughs> I'll give her this though. She contributed uh, probably the best pair that this series had. And, yes, uh, it's not. It's not, and it was so good that they repeated it in in part six. Like that exact scene had to show up again in part six. So, <laughs> uh, the rest of the movie didn't really. I mean, well, you had the pinup girl with hers, but she's on kind of the smaller side. So, yeah. Um. But uh, but this movie did have it's funny because I think that adds to the cheapness of it a little bit is that Rennie Harlan I feel like and it, and, and it kind of plays out a little bit in the trivia when we get to it I feel like he was a bit of a horn dog and um and you know so he added more tits to this movie than any of the other movies technically yeah. had in the series but uh but at the same time I mean it, the you know he did it in a, in a way I mean. It's appreciated by some of the fans because, I mean, that's kind of what you got out of slasher movies. It was assumed that you would get something like that. But it, it, then again, the way, the way that he treated some of the characters, they, they were more caricature than they were actual, like, a character you felt like for. The only person in this movie that felt like a real, like, I mean, well, well, I, I would say Kristen feels okay, like, yeah. as far as a the character. They, they give a little bit to Tuesday Night to work with. But it's, it's, uh, you know, Lisa Wilcox is Alice is the only one who feels like a fully fleshed out character in the entire movie. Yeah. Um, cause Dan's just there. I mean, like he's just a pretty boy that she's obsessing over and it's, it's really up to Lisa to pull the majority of the acting weight in this entire movie. Yeah. A lot was on her. Like everybody else was just there and they technically served a purpose, but it didn't feel like anybody was fighting as much as her. 
No, I mean, she's, uh, and she was the one that had like any kind of emotion. I mean, there's that entire scene, uh, if, if I remember right, because four and five have same characters basically. So it's kind of, they kind of blend, but I believe this is the one where she sees like the older version of herself, like in the diner that like, you know, and that's, that's, and that was her nightmare about her future or whatever, that she would be stuck in that town and just working at the diner and, like, I mean, like I said, she's the only one that really gets any kind of development whatsoever. In yeah. The film. Um, which that makeup, as far as the aging effect, I don't know. I mean, I, it was supposed to be in a dream. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's okay. Um, uh, like I said, I don't know. That might be in part, uh, it might be in the next one though, to be honest with you, because in that same scene, the one where Freddie eats like the souls or whatever. And like, but no, it's in this one. Cause it's Rick's face. I believe that, that he eats the soul. Of, I don't know. You like, got me all yeah. fucked up right now. <laughs> But you know what scene I'm talking about, right? Where he's eating the pizza and like he picks it up and like you know I'm pretty sure. Let me because I I took the line or whatever from whichever one it was, and then like I mean I think in this one if it was like made it into the, the quotes or whatever, uh, well that still doesn't help because he says uh, bon appetit, bitch, and like the next one. So like I don't know. I'm, I'm I don't remember if the pizza scenes in this one or not. But regardless, like the point still stands Lisa's or Alice is the only character in this movie that's really developed to any extent. So, um, is there any other parts of the acting that stood out to you? I mean, like I, I kind of felt bad for Ken and, 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 the and the actor who played Joey because like, they don't, they never really got much. It's, it's kind of like they were just kind of like, well, I, we're going to tie it in the last movie, but then you guys get kicked the fuck out and you're done. So like, they didn't really give them anything to do in this movie. Um, okay, so you're right about the pizza scene. It is the four one. Uh it's excuse me, the four one. It's it's in four. Uh and he says something like, I like soul food or I love soul food. Yeah, he's Fucking like uh, yeah, I love soul food or whatever, you know, whenever he's eating like the the meatball. Yeah, because he looks at it and he's like uh he either say, he either says it's Joey's the the little meatball, or it's it's Rick or something. But that's why he says he's like, "Oh, you little meatball," and like he's, "I love soul food," you know that's that whole thing. So, um, yeah. In terms of acting, I just wanted to point out how distraught that good boy Jason Borkey's looked when his owner died in real life. Yeah, whenever he's in the room, uh, and then he like you know, and he sees his owner like die in front of him. That 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 was, I mean, to give uh, the good boy bad boy uh, or you know dog debate uh, a little bit of a push toward your side of it. I will give him that. He yeah. you know he did try to help out his master by, or at least he seemed concerned. That he his was died, very so. distraught, and that was sad. <laughs> I was like, oh, because there's nothing he could do. And to his credit. <laughs> He was not really in the dream. Yeah, I guess he, well, I guess he wouldn't be because the, the fact is, is the only reason that, that Jason was in the dream whenever he bit uh, uh, Kristen was because she pulled uh, him in there by accident yes. whenever she pulled in um, Kincaid, but then like, or, or Roland, but like, you know, that was Roland's dream by himself whenever he, whenever uh, Freddie was like rematerialized. So yeah. And that like, if something wasn't right, because when they pulled the dog in or when the dog was excuse, not pulled in because the dog was just there and he, and obviously he pulls his dog in dreams because he was not surprised his dog was there. It was like, okay, just another fucking dream with Jason, uh, which is hilarious that the dog's name is Jason, but whatever. Um, 
And the dog is very adamant about this one area. He's trying to show him something, and then he's digging, and then he does the pee thing. And I'm sorry, but the dog does not pee fire. That wasn't really Jason. That was fucking Freddy <clears throat> fucking with him. Um, it's it's possible. I'll, I'll give you some points in that direction uh, for that. Uh, when we get to like the uh, the the Death Holler Wars, we'll, we'll discuss <laughs> that a bit more. Uh, Story wise, this movie was also kind of a shit show because, like, I mean, yeah, it, it followed the same formula, but like, and and the one thing the lore wise that I did appreciate with it is established that that technically, according to the whatever boundaries of his like you know revenge ghost story that was going on, Freddie could only attack the the children on Elm Street specifically, yeah, because that that were the those were the parents that specifically caused him to, you know, die to begin with. And so he used uh, Kristen's dream warrior ability to pull other people in, to pull someone in who was from outside of there and then use her as the, the gateway to, you know, get to the rest of Springwood, Springwood's children. So I appreciate that. Yeah. But I feel like the rest of it was just kind of strung together, just like, hey, we're making a movie, you know, like it didn't really, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying like, it's not like a highlight by any means. It's just, you know, it's just another way to have a sequel with some cool kills. It's really it. So, yeah. Well, I will say that <laughs> I definitely respect that he's trying to kill quotation mark, the last of the Elm street kids. Um, and obviously he's going to branch out a little more. Uh, I will say that did, I, I wasn't understanding. Did Kristen just not have, Dream warriors have a little bit more power in their dreams than the average person. But she didn't seem like any kind of dream warrior at all. She just was a vice. Yeah, um, that was the thing that aggravated me because they set up in three that even though her main power is that she could pull people in and that was like her, I mean, like that's an amazing ability that nobody else had. Yeah. Like her other ability was is that, I mean, they kind of showed that, I mean, she could at least... I mean, even though it was kind of Nancy who stood up in her place, uh, she could kind of at least, I mean, she, she had the ability to kind of push back against Freddie a little bit in, in certain ways and not just be like the damsel in distress. Where in this, in this one, she was relying upon Joey and, and Kincaid to kind of come in there and kind of save her ass is what, what they, the way they established this. So, yeah. Um, which, you know, I, I don't know. It takes a lot of agency away from the final girl in that sense, uh, you know, especially right before they were going to kill her off anyways. I mean, they when they killed off Nancy in part three, they at least gave her a hero's out. Yeah. You know, she sacrificed herself to save uh, Kristen, whereas in this one, Kristen's you know, actually perpetuates the problem and doesn't really stand up for herself at all before, you know, leaving the scene. Yeah, and then the whole purpose of everyone transferring their dream powers as soon as they die, like it's getting transferred to the next person or the next person, whatnot, it's just, you can tell it's just to serve the purpose of to keep the movie going, and that's it. It doesn't, other than that, it doesn't really make sense. Dream warriors are dream warriors because they're dream warriors, not because, you know, they were passed a torch. Yeah, um... They set up in this movie that, like, basically uh, Alice can absorb the dream warrior powers of the people or at least personality traits of the people who died before her. So when Rick, her brother, dies, then she gets his kung fu powers. Uh-uh. Uh, 
Kristen, you know, she has that moment where she's getting ready to smoke like Kristen did. And then she's like, wait, I don't smoke. Like, like you know, saying that she's picking up her yeah. kind of like some of Kristen's personality. Uh, when the gym rat died, she got like some strength to her at that point. So it's like, but they don't really, they don't really explain anything. Cause if, if that was how Kristen's power worked, and I think they might've hinted at that a little bit in the previous movie, why was Kristen so powerless? You know, yeah, it thank doesn't, you. It, it doesn't make any sense. Like if Kristen had all those other dream warriors, like the, the you know, the badass chick with the knives and then like the dungeon master with his like wizard abilities. Like if she had all those like powers, like why was they, they don't really do a good job of saying why she's powerless. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I will say in defense of that, I do really like how they took Alice's character from like basically like this milk toast, like wallflower blend into like the background character at the beginning of the movie. Cause I couldn't, I didn't really like her. And then the farther that she went on the movie and the more that like, and this, a, a tribute to, to the actual actress's ability herself, Lisa's, um, I love how she like became more empowered as the movie went on and like more of her personality and like stuff came out. Like it was, I mean, that was a good transition because I liked Alice at the end of the movie, even if I didn't like her at the beginning. So, yeah. Um, but I, I don't know how much of that was like Harlan really doing anything, Rennie Harlan, or if that was just the act. I feel like the actress had more to do with that. I mean, I, I know that they're both have to be working together, but like, knowing some of the behind the scenes and some of the things about him, like he was too busy sucking face with Tuesday night to really give a shit about much else during this. Probably. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we've not discussed the music. I actually love the music in this movie just cause it feels the most eighties of all the movies that we've discussed. Like when you're listening to this, this, this sounds like an eighties movie, like straight up. Like, I mean, it's got, like, I mean, the, the musical beats in this movie sound like, you know, I mean, like you're like, you would imagine like the synth score and like some of the songs in it and even, the Tuesday, like the songs that are playing a lot of them are Tuesday nights, actual songs. Yeah. Which aren't um, too bad, but, and they're not too bad and they've got a very eighties feel to them. So I, you know, I, I as nostalgia wise, I kind of dig it, you know? Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about the movie before we move on? I mean, it's, to me, just kind of summarizing it, like three is still the pinnacle. This is a drop down. And I'm actually, I want to throw this out there. This is actually a farther st step down than I thought it was. I remember as a kid, like actually this being my like second favorite. Uh, but like, obviously as I got older, I appreciate the first one more and more because of what Craven actually did with it and how they set everything mm. up. And, you know, because like when you're a kid, you can't appreciate like, I mean, I, the kills in this stood out to me more, you know, and the kids are all about the spectacle. Yeah. But I appreciate like the actual story and like the pacing and stuff like that better in the first one. But three is still my favorite mix of the two as far as the spectacle and the story they were trying to come up with and the lore of, you know, Amanda Kruger being like raped by the, you know, however many maniacs because they change it from movie to movie. Yeah. Um, but this one is, took a step down because it just it felt so cheap compared to some of the other ones. It did. Like, it did feel really cheap. And if there's one thing that I feel like I've learned from watching these films is that you really can do too much in a film. <laughs> with, But, like, they, they did too much, but they only had how many deaths? Seven deaths. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> I think they're trying to do too much with the storyline and... Not focusing on what we came to see, which is the deaths. And um, 
one thing, speaking of deaths, that this kind of reminded me, the way that, that Freddy dies in this one, like, is... It's probably the cheese. I mean, like, I love the effect, but it's like the cheesiest, like, no answer reason for why he died. Like, at least she literally held a mirror up to him and he saw his own evil. Like, seriously? Yeah. Like, I mean, how, how he came back was cheap. First of all, dog <laughs> pissing and he comes back. Well, I'll get, I'll get to why that was actually how he came back. Then the trivia, it's actually kind of funny. I bet. I death, hope it's funny because it wasn't like genius. <laughs> Uh, it's 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 there it's it was facetious he was doing it for and i'll get to why but it's it was the the director saying i'm going to do this because i can basically um but then um i did but then the ending was just kind of the same way it was like okay you wrote yourself in the corner didn't know how to kill him and then that's what you did i mean like i, I love the effect and you know and i love the idea of the souls that are trapped within which is a horrible thought too like these kids not only are they getting killed by him yeah but then they're go, but then they're trapped in a purgatory within him like that's the worst like i mean like he's way worse than any of the other slashers will ever cover just for that fact like I mean, at least your soul goes on to heaven or hell or whatever if you're killed by, like, you know, Jason or Michael. But, like, in this, Freddie, he, you never get away from him, no. like, ever. You know, um, but at least they're able to, like, recover and, like, you know, go on to the afterlife after the ending. So there, there's the, that kind of is an interesting thought. But, like I said, the, I just don't like that. It's like literally a mirror caused him to, like, see himself or some bullshit. And I'm like, uh... Mm. Because he, he's seen himself in mirrors before. That makes no sense. Like, you know. Yeah. It um, wasn't because this mirror, didn't it get shattered or something like that? It Something about like they were in the, the church and then like, uh, I think they were trying to hint that the light that shined on it was like God's light or something. Okay. And it was like reflecting or I don't know, but they don't, it, it's just there. It was a convenience thing that they set up. Yeah. So. It still doesn't. I'm still not buying what they're selling. So. <laughs> Uh, do you want to move on to the trivia now? Let's do it. Uh, first film in the franchise where Robert England received top billing in the opening credits. That's fucking bullshit. It took four fucking movies and not even the best of the movies. I guess they didn't know that nope. back then. Why the fuck? Um, like, how rude. <laughs> uh, Scott Pierce is listed as screenwriter. Like I said, it's a pseudonym of Jim Wheat and Ken Wheat. Uh, the name of the diner where Alice works is called The Crave Inn. As in C R A V is you're craving something I N N, which is a reference to Wes Craven. Uh, during the writing of the film, Rennie Harlan and some of the producers by chance happened to bump into James Cameron. This is the reason why the movie had the, that scene with the dog pissing. Cameron somewhat facetiously asked Harlan how he was going to bring Freddie back to life for this movie. Uh, the way that Harlan stated it in the, you know, uh, Never Sleep Again was like, uh, you know, Cameron's literally like, oh, you're directing none of those movies, huh? How are they bring him back this time? And then uh, Harlan uh, also facetiously replied back, oh, well, a dog pisses fire on him and he comes back to life. Um, the idea ended up being used in the film, uh, although in a, met- a more metaphorical manner than the literal sense. Uh, with Robert uh, England explaining that dog urinating fire on the Freddy's remains is meant to symbolize a hellhound and how evil Freddy truly is. Um, <sighs> I think they're dressing up uh, or putting uh, what lipstick on a pig with that that whole me- metaphorical part of it. Yeah, it's literally Harlan was like, "Okay, Cameron, uh, touche, game's on. You think that I won't do this? I'll fucking do it." <laughs> and bitch, I did. So it was a pissing match that literally turned into a, a pissing, pissing match. Oh my god, that is! It's also further proof in this series that Freddie will not harm a dog or an animal. 
He just won't do it. Jason uh, Voorhees as well. Uh, Wes Craven turned down New Line Cinema's offer to direct and rewrite the script. Um, Was it that Wes bad? Cra- Is that why he turned it down? We don't. I know we don't know, but like I'm thinking about think it now. He, I think he said on there that like he just he didn't like how. Um, he didn't like how they were taking the series and he didn't like, like he, how gay the third one was <laughs> the second one you mean oh, second, my bad. Uh, he always felt like the that the movie was one uh, one and done anyways he didn't see the point in freddie living on because in his version when uh nancy turned her back on freddie freddie completely died like the only reason that scene at the end with that cheap blow-up doll exists is because rob shea you know was like uh this is gonna be a franchise and uh we're gonna set up like a little stinger tease to like say that freddie's not is still out there like craven still to this day hates that you know or yeah. well he did he's passed away but i mean you know, <laughs> he he never he never was happy with that decision um, so I, I'm sure whenever he saw this and he's just like, you're, you're just turning them out. I'm I'm not coming back for that. So, yeah, which is sad, but I guess, he, you know, he did well, <laughs> he did. Okay. So, um, he did come up with a idea for uh, a concept about time travel, uh, as a concept for this movie, whenever they, um, he, he initially thought he did initially think about coming back and he, and his version, <clears throat> I think they actually traveled back into the past or something, and like, and, and this might've been part three and they never used it, but like he, he was going to have it to where they killed like the baby, uh, Freddie or whatever. And like, you oh, know, yeah. and that's how they solved it. Um, but Robert Shea and Sarah Risher felt that this was too high of a concept for nightmare on Elm street sequel and didn't think that it fit the formula that Craven created with the first film. I don't know. I, that's, that just seems more like Robert Shea just one. I wouldn't give up or not killing Freddie is what it sounds like to me, but yeah. Uh, England's favorite part in the film was the time loop uh, uh, because it seemed like a visual of a dream that keeps repeating itself. Uh, And it's also his favorite movie of the series. I, mm, I feel like, uh, you know, he, maybe it's because he got to do more as Freddie in this one, but it's, I, I think that's a bad take for this to be his favorite, but whatever he, he, he likes what he likes, I guess. So, yeah. Uh, this is funny. Rennie Harlan got the job by refusing to take no for an answer rather than accept the rejection. When he first, uh, pitched the idea of being the director, he instead showed up at new line cinema offices every day, repeatedly requesting to speak with the producer, Robert Shea, uh, for Robert, uh, for a variety of reasons. They didn't like any of the other directors who came in for the meetings about this movie. And Harlan always seemed to be around. Eventually his persistence won the day. Uh, to some degree, because he was so clearly impoverished that his clothes never seemed to change day to day, and even began to smell. They had to hire him just so uh, they joked and never sleep again that they hired him literally so that he could, you know, get a new change of clothes and and stop smelling their offices up. Yeah. Um, uh, According to Harlan, uh, Shane uh, rarely ever spoke to him throughout the shoot, even though he would visit the set often. This made filming Shay's cameo scene a bit difficult. The resulting tension meant Harlan lived each day on set, thinking it would be his last because he was fairly positive Shay was going to fire him at any moment without warning. Damn. And he did mention this on Never Sleep Again. He was like, every day that Shay came there, he never said anything. He kind of scowled, and then he walked away, and he's like, I'm getting fired tomorrow. Like, every day he came into work, that's what he was thinking. Um, that's a bad way to do a job, by the way. Yeah. I mean, regardless of what, you know, the, the, the results that Harlan produced, like, that's a bad way to have to operate. Uh. 
Oscar-winning screenwriter uh, Brian Helgeland was hired to write the film after being recommended by Robert England, for whom he penned the screenplay to, to England's directorial debut, 976 Evil, which came out in 88. Oh, shit. The film had a... The film had a release date set, but no script or director, and Hedgeland was uh, hired under the uh, condition that he could deliver the script within seven days. Oh, my God. (laughs) He was advised by New Line Cinema uh, head uh, Robert Shea that if the script came in a day late, they didn't want it. Hedgeland then flew to Massachusetts for Christmas and wrote the script sitting at his father's kitchen table. He FedExed the finished screenplay back to Los Angeles and made his deadline. Based on this script, director Rennie Harlan signed on, and the film marks Hedgeland's first screen credit. Though 976 Evil was his first one, it was released after this movie. Um, And um, it's just funny because, I mean, maybe that's why the story is only like, you know, just a... It feels like it's just there to kind of, you know, keep thing, you know, keep the kills going because I mean the guy had seven days to write it. So, <laughs> what do you expect in that amount of time? You know, here's the <clears> thing: <throat> is I've never seen Nine Seven Six Evil. I've always wanted to watch Nine Seven Six Evil. Um, it's Google alone has rated eighty two percent of people who have watched the movie and rated it have loved it. So there's that. Um, I mean, it's got a pretty low Rotten Tomato score. Have you seen it? Both from audience and the tomato meter, although I would say the audience score is twice as good as the tomato meter, but even the tomato meter is low, so. I'll have to admit, I've never seen it. I always saw the previews, or I mean, I always saw like the VHS tape of it back in the day whenever that was a thing, but I never actually bothered to rent the movie. Now, which, which tape cover do you remember? I don't know if I'm... Losing my mind, but I thought I always remembered a skeleton head in front of a telephone that said 976 Evil, but I'm not seeing that at all. I want to say that I remember seeing like a burnt face, almost like Freddy's, that was like, you know, on the cover, but I could be wrong about that. I mean, they're just like shit blending together from back in the day, so. Yeah, we we, we are definitely on a different level. Uh, Not you and I, but from what we're seeing, it's the, what is that called? The effect the what mandela effect yes or whatever we, well, we swear yeah because like i said i it could have been a burnt head that i saw i, I said skeleton but we we saw something but apparently it does not exist anymore <clears throat> uh the success of this film actually convinced the producers to create freddy's nightmares that came out in 88 which was the tv show that you know uh Kind of, it was only loosely based. It was an anthology series, more like Tales from the Crypt. In fact, the Tales from the Crypt writers primarily came from the staff of writers that did Freddy's Nightmares. Like they, they after that that show ended, they went directly over to Tales from the Crypt and started that show up. So, hmm. um, uh, Kristen Clayton, who plays the little girl in Kristen's Dream, also appeared in Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors and was also uh, as also as a little girl in Kristen's Dream. Um, she was so the one that the was like, it hurts. Back. You're hurting me. Yeah, you're hurting me. And she was the little <laughs> skeleton or whatever, which was, I, I love that. I it's love just it. so cheesy but good. It's my favorite. Um, not only did actress Tuesday Night co-star in the film, she also performed the theme song, which we have yeah. discussed. Which and, um, she fucking also, has aged. Oh, my God. She is hot. <laughs> um, is she? I, I could. Well, I, the one I remember now, I'm thinking of the girl six or whatever that played in that, and she is not aged well. But let me see. Uh, Tuesday Night um, is 54 years old, and she looks like she's in her 
30s, maybe. Like some photos you could see under her eyes. She hasn't had much work done because uh, you could see kind of the age under her eyes a little bit in one photo that she posted. She looks very natural. But there's other like videos she has posted of, guys, I'm doing this thing, blah, 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 on Twitter specifically. And I'm like, bitch, you do not look fucking like she looks so young still. But not in a I got a ton of plastic surgery kind of way. I I don't know how to explain it. Oh yeah, now I remember. Yeah, I mean like she age wise she has now she has put on weight. That's the the big yeah. thing. But yeah, she uh, you know as far as like lines in her face and all that. Yeah, she's not age much at all. Yeah, oh you're right on that. God, dude, I shouldn't teach me the secrets, girl. <laughs> um, Kristen, I already covered that. Uh, let's see. During filming, several of the main actors on set were turned off by their co-star actress Tuesday night and director Rennie Harlan's apparent romantic fling, <laughs> which ultimately resulted in Knights being pampered by Harlan and given special attention while the other actors were tossed aside. That would um, piss me off. The rumor of the relationship on and off set was talked about so much that when the documentary Never Sleep Again was being filmed, many of the cast spoke of their distaste and jealousy over not getting all the attention from the director some 20 years prior. Um, she, despite that, though, she was supposed to have wore a more revealing bikini on the beach scene, but she refused uh, despite the insistence of Harlan, so they had a little lover spat over that whole situation. Mm, that's a shame, because I bet you she had a fucking body. <laughs> She did back in the day, I think. And, of course, I mean, you know, him being, uh, you know, and Rennie Harlan is like, you know, uh, Finnish or Norwegian or whatever you want to say. Like, you know, um, he's, and and he very much, whenever he was describing the movie, he said that he, when he made the movie, he said, I know the audience is a bunch of horny teenage guys. And he said, I gave them exactly what they wanted in the movie. So you can imagine if he says that now, and he's like, you know, some 20, 30 years on that back in the day, whenever he was a big horn dog, that it was like, you know, probably even more so, you know, the way that he was. Um, According to everyone interviewed about the movie and the documentary, no one really knows why Patricia Arquette didn't come back, but there were a few theories. Uh, Rennie Harlan and Rodney Eastman, uh, who plays Joey in the movie, stated her agent asked for more money, but New Line wouldn't agree to it. It's been said that it was due to Arquette being pregnant at the time of filming, but her child was born in January of 89, so that, that kind of gets debunked. Yeah. Uh, as the film was filmed in early 88, so it's unlikely she didn't return for being pregnant because at the time of filming, she wasn't either pregnant yet or only a few weeks pregnant. Yeah. Um, but she was in a movie called Far North, which was released in November 88, so it's more li- far more likely that she was committed to Far North and couldn't have seen, and could have, and that could have been the reason why she didn't return as Kristen. Uh, and so that, you know, that's the theorist. But uh, I, the money thing kind of fits too because Robert Shea was trying to chunk, you know, produce these for the cheapest amount possible. We can to tell. Get the most return, you know, yeah, obviously. Um, Rodney and Ken uh, Sagos, who played Kincaid, didn't feel the heartfelt reunion with Tuesday Night in this film because she had replaced uh, Patricia Arquette, and uh, and they both fa- and, and both failed to convey the emotions called for in the script. So they admit that they didn't really like give their best, but they also felt like it was a half-hearted thing, anyways, because Patricia wasn't there, and because she wasn't there, they didn't really, you know, they, it kind of felt like hollow to them, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah, that and they, it sounds <laughs> like they had some disdain towards her because of the whole relationship thing. She's like, oh, well, you're just sucking the fucking guy's dick, so you're getting whatever the fuck you want, and we're fucking yeah. left to the dogs. 
Yeah, there was a there was a lot of that too going on. They were pissed off about that. So, and they weren't happy either that they were getting killed so early in the script. Because I, I remember on the the Never Sleep Again documentary, um, Sagos was talking about, it and he's like, you're, "You're," he said, "Is that?" He said he read like a few, just ten or thirteen pages in, and his character's already dead. And he's like, he he went so far as to say that whenever he told his his friends ask him it's like uh oh man we want to see you in this movie he said well you better get there early yeah uh, make sure that you don't wait for popcorn or anything because if you blink you i'll be dead is the way he phrased it so i think he had he was a little bit pissed off about that and i don't blame him honestly because i mean i I feel like they did all those characters dirty a little bit the way they just introduced these dream warriors were like dream security guards at best (laughs) uh yeah working at a very cushy mall somewhere and you know like uh podunk you know uh usa where there's never a crime that's the kind of way that they felt because they weren't prepared for shit yeah and the second Um, like something slightly inconvenient happens they're fucking gone Uh, a magazine can be seen in Kristen's room that has a picture of johnny depp on it i bet she's Um, a hoe (laughs) <laughs> uh, Rodney Eastman and Ken Sagos wanted larger parts like I said and were shocked to see that they were reduced in the film uh, at around 40 minutes the scene where Alice and Rick were watching the home videos was the last minute edition in an interview with Andrus Jones he stated that because of the writer's strike and because of Rennie Harlan's poor English he and Lisa Wilcox wrote their own dialogue for it um, I do remember this part of it so they had um so Rennie Harlan like could barely speak to anybody because like, you know, he just, his, his accent was just like super thick, you know, Norwegian or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the actual writers who were supposed to be like, you know, uh, cause that, even, even though they had a script for this movie, they were literally, and I think even more so with the next one, but even with this one, they were, when scenes were added, like they were adding them like, you know, uh, you know, just uh, a few nights before at best, you know, for, for them to get prepared. Yeah. And so, uh, when the writer strike went on, like Rennie Harlan was just like, you know, he would look at him and say, just do your best, you know, basically. <laughs> and like, they, they had to just improvise some of this. So that, that, that added to the, you know, kind of the feeling too, that it was cheap in that sense. Yeah. Not only was it cheap, but no wonder the actors didn't have the fucking, like the desire to make this the greatest. Like it's not like they were just like, well, I'm here for our fucking paycheck. Yeah, basically, and I mean that, that goes to show. That's also why I was saying that it's it's uh, Lisa and like the, Alice being as good as she is in the movie. Uh, however, you feel about that, some people might feel it's that great. But even as good as she is, that's that's entirely the actress. Like I mean, because I don't Harlan was too busy doing things, you know, with Tuesday night to be bothered with much of this. So. I mean, I, I can't say that I blame him. She's kind of freaking hot. <laughs> Was and is still hot, um, but still, you can't have that take away from a whole fucking goddamn project, you know? Yeah, especially one that you're thinking about you're getting. So I don't know if maybe it was like he, he thought he was going to get fired anyway, so why not just, you know, uh, fuck off and do whatever he was going to do, but, you know, is what it is, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> At around 15 minutes, the character of Roland Kincaid has a poster of The Hills Have Eyes on his bedroom wall, obviously a nod to Wes Craven. Uh, at around 27 minutes, when Kristen is in the hospital after hitting her head, the nurse changes into Freddie, who has vials of blood in his right hand. One of the vials, the one closest to the camera, says England, which is his last name, you know, the actor. Yeah. Um, according to Annette Benson, the casting director, more than six, 600 actresses auditioned for the role of Alice. 
uh, Lisa Wilcox was on her honeymoon when she was cast as Alice and uh-uh. needed to come back to Los Angeles immediately to start shooting. Oh, uh, natu- man. <laughs> a natural blonde, she also had to dye her hair red to differentiate herself from Tuesday Night, who had been cast as Kristen. Um, Lisa said that Alice was made for her, and I, this was in the Never Sleep Again documentary because she was a shy, because she was a shy teenage girl, you know, um, I guess prior to the honeymoon and all that. Uh, who thought that she'd never get a boyfriend so she could relate to the character, basically. Um, Rennie Harlan based this film on a Chinese ghost story, which came out in 87 and created all the nightmares himself based on dreams he had thought uh, had throughout his life. Uh, I just wonder about the Joey scene. If he had a scene, you know, I'm sure that the pinup model was definitely a wet dream that he had at yeah. some point. So 100%. Uh, Ken Ken Cade's dog name is Jason, a possible nod to some of the Friday the 13th movies because of Jason Voorhees, obviously. What makes this rather interesting is that in in the movie, Jason the dog brings Freddy back to life, and in Freddy vs. Jason, Freddy brings Jason back to life. So, um, which we'll be covering that movie during the uh, uh, Friday the 13th uh, wrap-up. So we'll kind of get uh, Freddy come back. Yeah. The car, the car junkyard set from a Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors is featured in Kincaid's Nightmare. It, it, this junkyard holds the distinction of being filmed at the same location for both films. It was a set built and filmed at a landfill in uh, Pacoima, California. I don't know if that's a thing or not. But that's what it, that's what the person put on here as far as the trivia. Yeah. Um, 1988 was the first year in which all three of the top horror franchises, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday, and Halloween, all released new films in the same year. Uh, The Dream Master, uh, Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood, and Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Uh, This was the highest grossing horror film of 88, so it beat all of its uh, competitors that year. That's insane. What a fucking great year for horror. Uh, Really good, because, I mean... This one's not a bad one in the series. I yeah. mean, it's 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 okay. Uh, part seven is great. I mean, as far as like the ones with Kane Hodder, I mean, it it's it's a good one. And and the Friday series and part four, a lot of people that's their favorite sequel just because it, you know, it finally brought you know the Michael that they wanted back. And I mean, you know, and 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 kind of you know expanded the lore a little bit on him too. So yeah. Uh, this is the first film in the franchise in which the end credits rolled instead of appearing in a slideshow. At around 24 minutes, when Alice kicks her shoe into the aquarium, a small object resembling Freddy's glove can be seen in the aquarium where the shoe lands. I tried to pause and see if that, but it, it's so quick. It's, I mean, you, you, I don't know how they found that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, at around 36 minutes, the sandcastle form of Elm Street House is visible in a freeze frame before it explodes on the beach. Uh, at around one hour and two minutes, also in the background wall of the theater entrance, there's a poster of Rennie Harlan's previous movie, Prison. Um, and Rennie Harlan himself makes a cameo as a student in the classroom. Um, Alice's abilities originally included those of the Dream Warriors, but were cut due to fear of confusing the audience. Um, which, like we said, it, I, Kristen should have had Dream Warrior abilities that they didn't show, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, a novel, albeit a very short one, based on the screenplay, was written by Joseph Locke and featured within The Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Part 4, The Dream Master, uh, and Part 5, The Dream Child, so they kind of combined both of them together. Um, 
Harlan wanted Toy Newkirk to redub her lines to sound more black. (laughs) And let me tell you, that actress is salty about this. I mean, she wrote it up on Never Sleep Again, and like she mentioned, and she's got a point. She's like, uh, he came to her and explicitly told her that she needed to sound more black, and she said, I looked at him and said, this is my normal speaking voice. What the fuck do you mean, speak more black? That's the most racist thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. I mean, and that's (laughs) coming from back then, that's pretty surprising. (laughs) <laughs> because I mean, racism was a little bit more out there and a little bit more socially acceptable, I guess you could say. And yeah, what do you please enlighten me? Why don't you sound like a black person so you can tell me how I'm supposed to sound? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I guess it's because where he's, you know, uh, from uh, Norwegian or whatever, he'd like been used to like some of those movies where. You know, they they just put on a real thick, like, southern accent or had a southern accent, and, like, that's what he expected her to sound like, and she was, like, this suburban California black girl that totally didn't have that going on, so. What you want? um, What you want? (laughs) Yeah, basically, he wanted her to be Brenda from the scary movie franchise is what he wanted. Um, At around 26 minutes, check out the nurse that wakes Kristen up at the school infirmary. It is Robert England out of his Freddy makeup. And then after Kristen wakes up, it's a different person. Uh, that's a nice little thing. It's like yeah. she's, you know, nice little throw in there. And the song, Are You Ready for Freddy by the Fat Boys, there is a sound clip from A Nightmare on Elm Street from 84. Uh, Andrus Jones, who played Rick, later played a bully in Good Morning Miss Bliss, uh, and which is the lead in to Saved by the Bell, for those who didn't know. Oh my God. And a character asked him if his last school was St. Freddy's on Elm Street. Uh, Anders Jones, uh, who played Rick and Linnea Quigley, who's the female chess souls we talked about, previously starred together in Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bolarama from 88. Sounds hideous. Um, it's, it's actually a pretty fun movie. It's going to be in our... Uh, uh, creature feature movie section because uh, they got like this imp who's got a very put on black voice and it sounds hilarious. Oh uh, God. <laughs> uh, during production, the writers, director and producers uh, uh, couldn't figure out how to kill Freddie at the end of the film. Obviously, eventually during a meeting, they discussed all the possible ways to kill a villain or a creature in a film, shooting, stabbing, burning, etc. They then realized that all the messages they'd been thinking of came from external forces and then decided to just do the opposite, come up with a way for Freddy to be killed by internal force. Thus, the concept of Freddy's reflection causing the souls of his victims to revolt and tear him apart from the inside was born. I um, mean, I guess, while, while I, in a sense, all the souls that were in him, like he'd seen it before, but this time he's got the souls of the Dream Warriors in him. If they had explained it better, maybe, you know, that would, oh, God, my camera, my mic was away. Maybe that would explain it a little bit better, you know, or make it make sense a little more. It would have been more acceptable, yeah, if they would explain it's like, okay, the kids previously were still in there, and that's the reason they never revolted and killed him, but now the Dream Warriors were in there, and they were stronger, so. Yeah. Um, they're all fucking, they're all strategically planning in there, like, okay, motherfuckers, this is what's up. Uh, when Debbie finishes transforming into a cockroach inside the Roach Motel, it is actually Brooke Thies in the cockroach uh, makeup and costume, as revealed in the TV documentary uh, The Making of Elm Street 4. According to Thies, the entire sequence was easy to do. The only difficult part for her was that Debbie pushes her roach body up and sees Freddy's eyes looking inside because of how slippery the floor uh, on the set was. And it supposedly it was really bad. Like, she 
was tripping and all kinds of shit in there. Like she couldn't even stand up. It was so slick. So yeah, I mean, it looked like it was a struggle. Although when you see it in the movie, it looks like her face is sticking to the stuff that's in there, which is awesome. That's how it should be, you know? Yeah. Cause that's, I mean, how Roach Motel would work. Um, Rick's death was originally supposed to be happen in the elevator with the elevator falling down around him until he is falling into just a dark space. Um, and they, and I mentioned that because they set up in the, and they even set up earlier in the movie. If you watch it and listen carefully, he, you know, he tells them he has a fear of elevators. Like that's his his phobia. Um, however, according to Rennie Harlan, they had already run out of money and were unable to afford this effect. Although other sources say it is because the script was still in flux at the time of shooting. It was then suggested he live, but then his funeral scene had already been filmed. Uh, so they were just going to let him live. And they're like, but you already filmed the funeral. And he's like, fuck. So he turned around and said, uh, all right, uh, how about, because he's in karate, have a dojo scene. And uh, because uh, that had been established already in the movie. Um, uh, a little bit of trivia about that, though, as Rick steps off the elevator, a Japanese-inspired version of Nightmare on Elm Street theme plays. Ah! And, in Jap- and in Japan, the movie was retitled a Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Last Counterattack. What? Yeah, exactly. Japanese movies have some weird titles. I don't know what to tell you. Oh, my God. Uh, at around 40 minutes, the two gravestones visible behind Kristen Parker's and Roland Kincaid's uh, graves are for Donald and Nancy Thompson, characters from Nightmare on Street and, and uh, 1 and 3. Uh, and Brooke, finally, Brooke Thies, Debbie, is the third Lubbock sister from the sitcom Just the Ten of Us to fall victim to Freddy Krueger, following Joanne Willett, who was the girl on the bus in Nightmare on the Street 2, and Heather Langenkamp, who died in Part 3. So there you go. That's that's the one I was referencing. So, All right, Death Holler Awards. What yeah. do we think about Alice as a final girl? Um, it, You know, I, it's so hard because it's not like she did a bad job. You know, I'm just going to say I didn't like her. Not in this one. Oh, no, Kristen is the one I'm thinking about. Kristen was the one that returned, huh? Yeah, Kristen was the one that returned. Okay. And, and that's the one thing that I don't like is that Tuesday night was very just like, I know that she was trying to portray somebody who kind of had PTSD and was like you know, low-key, like, I mean, even with the smoking thing, because I don't think they really established that in part three, that yeah. she was a smoker. Like, was trying to show that she was like, her mental health had degraded since all the stuff that she went through. Uh, but even with that, I don't feel like Tuesday really brought much to the role. Like, she's just kind of there. As yeah. The she was just placed in the shoes. I get it. But anyways, um, I don't know. Alice. Alice did. She did. I didn't like her. <laughs> Like I said, I didn't like her at first. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, whenever she just kind of like the uh, anxiety ridden. I mean, obviously because her dad's abusive drunk or whatever, but um, she just kind of like had no personality. But then as she got like the the abilities of the other, you know, people who the other teenagers who died, like she kind of came out of her shell, and and I, and I liked her more toward the end of the movie. Although I agree with you, I think I like her better in the Dream Master or or in the, the Dream Child, the next one in the series. Yeah, we'll address that then. But I mean, she's a final girl. That's it. Uh, Freddie is more goofy in this movie. I mean, if we're talking about the slasher, I mean he he's still. He's still a little threatening, but he's definitely, I mean, especially with the pizza scene, like, oh my you God. know, it's going full camp in this movie. Oh, he is. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't care. Is it this movie or the next one where he starts wearing the mask? 
Uh, I want to say that this is the last movie where they did the makeup like for the full way. Yeah. Uh, they wanted to, because they had to speed it up in the next movie uh, out of necessity because they only had 12 weeks to film that fucking movie. Yeah. That it was, it was the mask at that point. Um, and I will say that the mask doesn't look the best and it's not in this film, but it does get better for a moment. And then. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. going back to uh, Freddie himself, though. I mean, he's Frederick. What can we say? That's our Frederick, you know. He's a little hammier. Oh, that's that's Freddie. That's that's just him. Yeah, um, he, he was definitely hammier in this, but he was still, he's still the Freddie we we know and love in terms of slashers and everything. He's not weak. If anything, he's trying harder to be more evil. So. Yeah, the only scene in this movie that really gets to me is just that beach scene with him with the sunglasses on. That's kind of like, why? Mm, I mean, it's it's a sign of things to come. Yeah, but he, he's still he's still fine. You know, yeah, as far as that goes. Uh, best kill. Um, the the Roach Motel is hard not to. I still think that that soul's ripping Freddy's apart is another good contender because that's probably my favorite way for a slasher to die is just have like their victims like you know. Yeah. Get I mean, justice. even if the way that it, it, even if the catalyst for that whole thing was just a fucking mirror being shown to him, it's like still that 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 scene is fucking cool. Like you know, so yeah. Um, I mean, I still like the waterbed scene only because that was so scary. Like I had a waterbed; it affected me. It was more effective to me. So. Yeah, it's it's like we talked about earlier with Alice, sweet Alice, where like you know, if you have a uh, shit done to your like feet, everybody's had feet pain, so like yeah. it's way more you know effective than somebody just getting stabbed in the chest or something. That would be scary as fuck. So, <laughs> uh, to me, I know you've already mentioned the one that you preferred, but my best Freddie one liner was "How sweet fresh meat," because that's like a classic line from this movie. So, fucking. <sighs> <laughs> Oh, Frederick. Um, well, oh, I'm, I'm too far. Oh, yeah, I did say mine that I liked. Okay, I forgot. I thought we were moving on to Dream Child for some reason. Don't. I'm, I need coffee. No, you mentioned it earlier, but which one was it again? Just repeat it for the, the, the listeners out there. Which one? Sayonara, Rickson? Yes. That yeah, was the that dumbest. One. Oh, my God. I mean, it was, it was funny. It, was, it, it fit, but it was just like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> And I don't know why Japanese adds san to the end of everything. Like, uh, I remember the cleaning ladies, the the guys called the mama-san, and the young girls called me Reina-san. And it was it's weird. I, I don't get it, but it's not my culture, so I'm not talking shit. It is an honorific. So they ha- and they have like three or four, and it and it's weird. It's like if somebody's older than you, and you're supposed to be respectful, then they get like. Uh, uh, one type of honorific if they're younger than you and then you're showing that, that they are younger than you and that they should respect you then I think they get Chan at the end of their name or C-H-A-N Chan John and then Son or, or is like uh, you're, you're almost on equal footing but you're showing respect uh, so okay. so like how we have sir and ma'am and that sort of thing that's their version of it okay basically. um I don't know why Freddie would say son. I think that that's them not knowing the culture because he would have, if anything, he would have called him like, you know, something. He would have probably, looking down on the character, he would have, or, you know, uh, Rick's character, he would have called him. There's another term out there that's like a, it's the it's a slur against you. It basically means you're uh, like a retarded child. And like, they, he would have probably used that as the, the end of his name. But 
whatever. Like I said, the Western culture wouldn't have figured it out anyway, no. so it didn't really matter. Yeah, and this reminds me of how Latinos are, we, <laughs> everything, every Asian culture, it's the same thing, chinito, which basically means Chinese, which is very disrespectful. It, it's it's just I I don't know I have I have nothing to say about it everything's chenito so it's, they it's, took a Korean form of martial arts and then they played Japanese music and then they added Japanese references to it so it's the same thing around here it's like whenever you know like you get get a, a good old boy that sees anybody who's Asian it's like well look at that Chinaman you know Chinaman like, oh yeah. my god. <laughs> Uh, and that's definitely a slur to anybody who's not from that area. So, I mean, you know, is what it is though. Uh, the best, uh, scream in the movie. Uh, I don't know if, I mean, the only one I can really, that stands out to me was Debbie Stevens when she's the, the, the when she sees like the cockroach, like she's turning into it because like, yeah. and also earlier in the movie, whenever she realizes she's about to eat a bug or whatever at one point, cause she's like so freaked out by bugs. Um, and and I'll give the movie credit for that. Whatever their fear was, they pretty did a they did a fairly good job of setting up later. That's how they would die in the dream. So, um, best boobs. I'm, I'm I put pinup girl on here, but it's Linnea Quigley. I mean, yeah. she yeah. didn't even have to be there, but she showed up and they showed up, and we all were better for it. So yeah, <laughs> um, you know, the death for me would have been Kristen or the scream. That was. Uh, that was a that yeah. was a painful scream. It was. You mean when she was t- tossed into the furnace? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you on that. Like that that was pretty good actually. That's probably the best thing that Tuesday contributed to this. Uh, besides uh, making sure that uh, Rennie Harlan was uh, well taken care of, I guess mm-hmm, that he was serviced. <laughs> uh, best side character. Uh, Rick or Roland, I mean, like, I, that Roland is just, I mean, I, I love how, I, even if he's not in the movie that much, I just love how he, you know, the way he delivers his line, Ken Sagos, it's just like he looks at Kristen at one part, and he's like, don't you even bring that shit back, you know? It's like that sort of mentality. He's yeah. like, pretty dead, and you leave him there. Don't even think about it, you know? But uh, uh, Rick, for, like, the, the Japanese uh, stuff that he added to the movie it was Ugh. it was kind of funny you it know, was but. it was just so cringe um i would be i would be fine with you putting jason in here uh which did you give him a last name uh jason Bor okay uh i gave him the bad puppers award the slash the franklin award for uh for dogs so there you go he does but, get that um, he does. I mean, I, I'm not going to deny it. You know, I'm going to, I'm still going to defend him in the court of law, but he does deserve the awards that he got, which is Bad Puppers and Franklin Award. I mean, Jason, what were you doing? Like, that had to have smelled like death. I know dogs do not, like, they can smell the death. They don't usually want to dig up the bones to go after them. They just want to lead you to them. And it seemed like for a second that's what he was doing, but then he got all fucking wild and shit. Um, I don't know if I would dis or if I would agree with you on the statement about like death because uh, that's like a common thing around here. Like if you get like dogs out in the countryside, if there's like a rotting like corpse of some kind of animal or something, dogs will totally jump around in that, play in it when they Ugh. come back to your house. Like they stink like death. You know, wonderful. Um, <laughs> I guess that's just not as common out here. We keep our dogs mostly indoors. We don't really have areas where dogs can just fucking roam. 
you know, uh, as in, uh, you know, da- our girl Daphne, who has a fucking literally a search and rescue dog. Uh, so there's that. It's, it's just kind of funny, too, because this area specifically, we have a term for how they smell. And like nobody outside the region would get it because of how it sounds and everything else. Uh, and I think it's the bastardization over time of carrion, you know, is the death, you know, like yeah. carrion smell, but it's corn is how it's said. So it's oh like, my if God. the dog goes out, it's like that damn dog smells like corn, you know, like that's, that's, that's the phrase. So, I mean, um, pretty interesting how the English language can in isolation develop such words, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god what you know whatever it's we're just it's just pronunciation so it, it is funny but it's so funny because if you were to hear me pronounce it the way that I think that it's pronounced you'd probably try to correct me but it's only how you perceive or how you say it it's not necessarily the correct way <laughs> I mean we had but this discussion me- about Appalachia and Appalachian and like you know it, it took me forever, though, I mean, coming from this region to figure out what the basis of that word was because, like, you know, you hear it so much as a kid and then, like, you and other people hear it and it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And it's like, you know, dead stuff. And then it, then it dawned on me one day, I was like, carrion. It's like they literally took that that old English word carrion for death and then that's what it sounds like, you know, after so long. So Is that where, like, is that no no it's not okay i was thinking carnage but carnage what is carnage derived from uh i mean well carnage just in general is a you know just the english word you know for devastation and stuff i don't know like what it originally was pieced together from because english itself's a bastardization of like german and oh, you know, yeah. french and spanish. spanish and whatever else you want to throw in there but you know uh okay. <clears throat> um how annoying is the Doom Prophet? That would be Kristen in this movie because she's the one that keeps going around yeah. saying that Freddy's coming back. Uh, uh, she's pretty annoying. Kind of fucking annoying. Yeah, <laughs> she is. She's definitely like she's um, she's the bummer of the party. She definitely delivers. Um, and it and it it's she's not doing anything. Yeah, she she is, and she's definitely not my favorite Doom Prophet in this uh, in this. Uh, round of movies that we're going to get to because I don't like part six in a lot of ways, but the doom profits plural in that movie. I enjoy we'll get to that whenever we discuss that movie, but yeah, yeah, and this one, she's just kind of there, you know, um, uh, dumbest moment is, uh, Kristen pulling Alice into her nightmare. I mean, like what the fuck are you doing? Just, I mean, if you're going to die, Kristen, just, you know, at least you'll you'll be the last one, and you'll seal Freddie off. Like, why? Yeah, I mean, I, they they play it they they play it up like she has no control over it, which is stupid too. It's like it's her power; like she can keep from pulling. Yeah, like I mean, uh, they they said it in this movie that she accidentally pulls, uh, you know, Joey, and but she calls for him. It's like she didn't have to do that. Like if she was going to face death and face it on her own terms and just go, like you know, yeah. Um, but anyways, uh, and then. Uh, also, uh, another dumb moment would be Dan and Alice driving around in circles while Debbie is turning into a roach and killed. But I forgive that because they were both asleep and didn't realize it. So Yeah, I mean, it's hard because you can't fault them for the stuff they were doing when they were not conscious. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's dream logic. They keep running in circles. Like, they can't get out of the, you know, yeah. and, and we'll get to that. They repeat it again in part six. So, I mean, it, you know, uh, in a different way. So, I mean, uh, so it's forgivable in that sense. Yeah. Um, anything you want to say about this one before we uh, end this episode and uh, get ready for the, the next two? I'm trying to determine... I guess I could say at the end of what what we think our favorite was. I don't want to jump that yet. So no, let's let's move on to part five, the dream child. Do you want to end this one here and then like pick that up as the next episode, or do you want to roll into it? I don't care either way. So. Uh, yeah, let's let's. Uh, yeah. Let's, oh God, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> we are pushing buttons. Let's fucking end it. All right, and with that, peace be with you and with your spirit.